This episode of the Forge Podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of Theo Fattel and Brady Turner, along with all of our other amazing Patreon supporters. If you would like to become part of the Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Thank you. Welcome to the Forge. Hello, Gamer Nation, and welcome to The Forge, your Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games' Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and we have a heaping helping of shifty, mutation, magic-y goodness for your episode tonight. In Diecasting, we'll be tackling a listener request to dive into the shapeshifter talents from the Realms of Terranoth setting, in the Furnace, we'll come to our penultimate episode in our Demystifying the Mystical series on magic in Genesis and reskinning it for other purposes. In Breaking the Mold, we'll be talking to Seth Rattan about his exciting product, the Game Master's Electric Toolkit. And of course, we'll be answering your games and rules questions in Under the Hammer. For now, however, let me introduce you to the Hyde to my Jekyll, the Grievous to my Obi-Wan, and the Plankton to my Spongebob. It's GM Chris. Chris, how you doing? General Kenobi. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. General Kenobi. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, still not... Uh, I'll, I'll get it eventually. Yeah, eventually. I, yeah, that's that's okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I can get that good cough going, you know, uh, you know, that I can find someone who's got the coronavirus, right. you know, swap, swap spit for a little while. Um, <laughs> that's, that's in really bad taste. Isn't, re- that's, uh, that's in terrible, that's people, people are dying. That's in terrible taste. I'm so people sorry. Are, people are dying. Jesus. <laughs> uh, people, people are dying. Yes. It's, it's, it's awful. And I'm quarantined in my home and getting a little, uh, not, not, not because I have COVID just, you know, what do they call it? <laughs> Uh, uh, man- managing your personal space, what do they call it? You know, self-imposed quarantine, whatever uh, they're calling look, it. Yeah, I think they call that social distancing, Chris. Okay, stay inside. I'm staying inside. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm, I'm going a little fatty, and uh, and that's fine. That's fine. That's you know, totally it's it, it's 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 all good. It's all good. At least I still get to podcast. Yeah, which is re- really all that matters, Hooli. Mm. In in my little world right now <laughs> is the podcast of the things. And the stuff. You know what, Chris? We should really get on to talking about the Foundry. Yeah, gosh, you're beyond right. <laughs> All right, so we've got a few things to discuss and some great new stuff available on the Foundry. So let's get into it in Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first... Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio Podcast of the Week? You know I would. So if you guys listening are a fan of RPGs of all stripes, like me, (laughs) and you're intrigued by not only discussion on disparate systems that you may have only heard of, as well as actual play of those systems, 
like me. <laughs> and you should really be listening to the Story Told podcast. Amazing show. Mm-hmm. Chaz and the crew, they put on an incredible production that is dedicated to exposing RPG fans to all the amazing systems and stories, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that can be told. Their most recent episode 48 was a brilliant overview of something I've been dying to get on the table, mm. uh, the City of Mist RPG um, by Son of Oak Game Studio. It is a, it, I don't know if you've heard of this, Huli, it is a wicked mashup of like urban noir mm-hmm. and myth. It's almost like a spiritual successor to urban arcana, mm. okay? But but you can replace like the Dungeons and Dragons monstery goodness right. with like myth- mythological history magic and monstery and goodness right wow it's 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 incredible mm. um it looks like an absolute blast um and i love this episode because i learned a lot more about it in this really comprehensive overview mm. so you guys should give it a listen uh to find out more and you guys can find the story told and many more amazing podcasts of gaming and geekery goodness over at d20radio.com indeed no i haven't had a chance to listen to it and I'm unfamiliar with City of Mist. I think I, I've saw an advertisement about it sometime or or whatever. So I will go and check that out. Thanks, Chris. I love new podcasts. So uh, so <laughs> that's great. Now, before we get on to the new items in the Foundry, we have a great deal of new news and updates on the state and future of Genesis and the other role-playing games that are produced by Fantasy Flight Games. That do. What's been out there? <laughs> Well, the wait is over. We all kind of uh, have finally been let in on on the end result to the rumor and the <laughs> speculation and the uh, uh, notification and everything else. Yep. As we reported on this very podcast and also on D20 Radio and as kind of the rest of the Internet became aware, um, obviously, Huli, back in early January, the, the RPG department at Fantasy Flight Games was was let go. Mm. And, uh, you know, very sad. Um, obviously, our, our, our friends and designers, um, yeah. you know, good people, talented people. Um, have poured their heart and soul into these games. We're very, we're very sad for that. Mm. And this, this led to a lot of speculation about, you know, that possibly, uh, you know, Asmodee was going to be uh, selling FFG. Mm-hmm. Um, that they were going to be offloading the RPG products entirely to another company, um, and that this may very well be the end of the RPGs that we know and love, like Genesis and Star mm-hmm. Wars and mm-hmm. L5R. And we got a report from a solid source from within FFG that the long-term plan at FFG was to discontinue RPG development. Hmm. This meant a lot of very crazy things to us. Shortly after that report broke, there were a couple of contradictory reports that came out online. FFG themselves had a live stream mm-hmm. where they were demoing something, and in the, the live stream comments, somebody asked about this very question, and you know, one of the admins said, no, you know, we're not discontinuing the RPGs. Stay tuned. We have announcements coming. Yep. Okay? Mm-hmm. Then, uh, just a few days ago, at least at the time of this recording, at uh, Gamma, the, the Game Manufacturers Association uh, trade show, Gamma mm-hmm. 2020, there was a the Asmodee panel, and uh, onto Reddit leaked uh, an image and a, and a quick report from somebody attending who basically said that Asmodee was not losing these RPGs, but basically FFG was. Mm-hmm. That these RPGs were being transitioned away from FFG and to Edge Entertainment, mm-hmm. which is a... French-Spanish um, publication house mm-hmm. that is also owned by Asmodee and has been since, I think, 2017. Yep. And basically, they would be taking over the, the RPG lines. Mm. And this was a little confusing to some of us because, you know, Edge Entertainment was basically a publishing distribution studio. They had handled the um, European language translations mm-hmm. for, for these various RPGs. And so, you know, a lot of us were a little mystified by that. But then... 
one day after that, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the day after that, in short order, um, we finally saw an official announcement, then followed by a lengthy interview, actually, with Steve Horvath, mm-hmm. who, uh, uh, Huli, you, you may may know. I mean, used, used to be with FFG and then moved into, uh, actually, as head of publishing at Asmodee North America, specifically. Yep. Yeah. And uh, it, was a, it was a pretty lengthy interview that he did with uh, Zach Bunn uh, from Team Covenant, mm-hmm. where they went into all kinds of stuff. But, mm. but the, the bottom line is that we were all right and we were all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we were all right in the fact that, yes, Fantasy Flight Games, um, unfortunately, is flat out getting rid of any type of RPG development. They are discontinuing it. Yep. However, Asmodee is not. Obviously, Asmodee, the owner of Fantasy Flight, still owns these RPG properties. And they have decided, based on the trends in the industry right now, mm-hmm. to, at a, at a conglomerate-wide level, not just at Fantasy Flight, but everywhere, really tighten up the way that games are produced and manufactured and created. Mm-hmm. And to that end, Asmodee, as a parent company, has said, we want all RPG production that we do as a company handled by one of our companies. We own one studio in-house to handle everything hmm. and to that end edge entertainment spun off a brand new studio uh called edge studio yep. and go to edgestudio.net and actually they have a temporary website up that looks pretty cool hmm. and that was kind of the first official announcement hmm. i mean and ultimately they they announced on their website that they will be taking over genesis star wars l5r the end of the world um hmm. and zombicide they announced actually five rpgs and basically said we're going to do reprints um, of old material, and we're going to be publishing new material. Mm. So it's 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 a very interesting time. And and Huli, did you watch the interview with uh, with Horvath? I did, and it, uh, it it is lengthy, but it's really really interesting. Um, you know, there is a lot of stuff that Steve couldn't say because um, you know that there are plans in motion, and they've already said that it's going to be probably twelve months before we hear anything from Edge Studios. Because obviously there's going to be a transition period, there's going to be setups and whatever else. And, you know, as as a freelancer for FFG, I know that from, you know, concept to publishing, it's normally about 12 months. So it's possible that they have one, maybe two projects that they have working. Um, but, uh, you know, my understanding is previous licenses, they had to produce one uh, one book per year to keep the rights for that. Um, so obviously this year we're going to be getting um, the the final book that was coming from FFG Studios, uh, which is the uh, the vehicles book for for Star Wars. Um, mm-hmm. We're also getting uh, the 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 Key Forge book from uh, for Genesis. And that seems to be what, um, you know, FFG was sort of, I don't know whether they had plans in the long term for winding down. Um, you know, these sort of things don't happen just in a bubble and, and perhaps overnight. We know that obviously the layoffs have happened overnight. But as far as the, um, you know, what products are getting um, produced, that um, they've done keyforges this year and who knows what they're going to do for next year. I know that there's a lot of um, pressure from just the community generally for something like Tannhauser. Uh, which um, you know is would be, I think, quite interesting. I'd like to see something a little bit different. Um, I'd like to see Twilight Imperium, um, for example. But um, you know, who knows what they will do? You know, we may also see um, perhaps a second edition of Star Wars uh, that moves more towards the Genesis rules. Who knows? Um, it's all going to be complete speculation at this point. 
It is. It is. What what intrigued me most about Steve's interview was because I tend to geek out about like state of the industry style stuff Mm -hmm. was talking about kind of the industry trends and market level changes that are happening in the industry right now. Uh, And it's, it's, he's not wrong. It's it's plain as the nose in your face for anyone who's paying attention. I mean, what's happened in the past several years with new technologies, Kickstarter. Okay. Mm -hmm. The fact that anyone under the sun can basically be a publisher. It's, it's caused sort of a, and then, and then ultimately there's things he didn't talk about, but inferred. So RPGs are more popular now than they've ever been. Yep. Okay. Ever. And and this is in no small part due to the Diana Jones winner in 2019, which as you recall was actual play. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, RPGs are cool now. Everyone's playing them. And as a result, they're hot. And we've almost got this like RPG bubble happening in the industry mm. where there's thousands of products being produced. And there's they've reached a point where there's just not enough store shelf space to really make it work the way it used to. So mm. Asmodee felt that things needed to change. And that's mm. not just in the RPG space, but in the overall space, board games as well. Yeah, because they, they moved into, uh, like Steve basically went through that they'd sliced FFG, not physically, like company-wise, but they've they've put it in two. So we've got board games and card games, and then we've got um, miniatures games on the other half. So, you know, they can develop things and really focus their attention rather than, as he said in the interview, um, you know, have people that are dragged across into um, to another project for a short period of time. And so as a result, the, the focus is lost a little bit. So now by moving things the way that they are, including with the RPGs, they can really focus and try to be industry leaders. And I mean, I think that what FFG did is leading the industry anyway. Um, but, um, you know, with the popularity of D&D, I would like to see uh, the same sort of uptake of Genesis and Star Wars that we see from uh, from things like D&D. I mean, D&D is always going to be uh, a product where it's a, it's an entry-level drug, for want of a better term. But, uh, you know, these other, there are plenty of other RPGs which are out there, you know, literally thousands of, of different settings and, and systems that, um, you know, places like drive through RPG really, really helps. But it does mean that some of the bigger companies have to super focus so that they can keep things, um, you know, that, that they can keep things fresh and uh, ahead of the curve, so to speak. Basically, yeah. And, you know, guys, I, I encourage you all to watch the interview with Steve Horvath yeah. that, that you can find it on YouTube, Team Covenant, you know, and and he spent the most of the time talking about kind of what's happening with Asmodee and FFG from a board game standpoint, mm. you know, and, and you know, dude, uh, Imperial Assault, yes. you know, Clone Wars Armada, <laughs> X-Wing, Legion, like, like, and, you know, I, I don't want to get into that here because this is not the show for that. <laughs> but but to to kind of sum up what he said about the RPGs specifically um, in regards to this new studio of, of Edge Studio, um, clearly spun off of Edge Entertainment, that is, is as he said, in Europe, you know, we, we are not yet familiar with who the, the names and, and, and writers are behind it. But Steve did say that these were the direct people who were the minds behind the end of the world RPG, yep. which I've played and it was fantastic. Mm. You know, basically saying, you know, all RPGs will continue to go on as, as they are. But as you mentioned earlier, Huli would be transitioned to Edge Studio by the end of the year. Yeah. It's not the worst news. Mm. I wish it was different. I wish our, our 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 good friends at FFG were still making these RPGs. Mm. But I am very excited and and pleased and and no small amount of me is relieved that these RPGs are going to continue. Yeah, absolutely. In, in, in a managed production way. Yeah, 
I mean, one of the questions that did get asked recently um, was, uh, and I can sort of like speak about this um, just from my experience, um, is that they're sort of saying, well, look, you know, maybe the uh, the previous developers as well as other freelancers are going to come back on board uh, with Edge Studios to do products. The only thing that I can say to that, even if they were, they would not be able to say a thing about it because of NDAs. And so you can ask the question as much as you want uh, until you go blue in the face. It's not going to get answered until the uh, until Edge Studio starts to uh, to advertise what they've got coming. So um, yeah. so yeah, that's as simple as that. As much as we'd like to report on that, um, you know that that sort of information is just not going to be available to the general public until the studio itself decides what they want to do. Yeah, and it's going to be a while. You know, we've got mm. at least till the end of the year till we're probably going to hear anything else. Yep. But what that means, Uli, mm-hmm. is it is going to be an interesting future <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And it means that the year of 2020, when it comes to Genesis, is going to revolve around what we now have confirmed will still be in place, mm-hmm. the Foundry. Indeed. And what does that mean? That means new Foundry content. Because we've got a couple of new items that uh, are all about uh, the Terranoth love. Um, so we yeah, should but- really get into that. So first up is a new offering from first-timer Matthias Alfonso, who did an incredible job with the Tome of Fantastic Items. Now, this magic item companion details over 100 different magic items to be used in the Terranoth setting, as well as special rule options for buying and selling magic items, handling magic items and avoiding hoarding them, creating cursed items, enhancing heroic abilities with characteristic items, identifying magic items, and handing out treasure in a quick and easy manner. Something that I absolutely hate about games is shopping sessions. (laughs) (laughs) I think everybody can relate to me with that. Uh, But this 40-page tome is a boon to any GM running a Terranoth game, though frankly it is really compatible with any fantasy setting using the Genesis rules, and it's a great buy at only five ninety nine. Yeah, it's a <clears throat> very, very cool product. Mm. I'm just, it's, so, there's so much in it. <laughs> um, he, di- he did a great job. Mm. Uh, wonderful, wonderful resource. Matthias, uh, good good on you for your first time outing, man. Mm. But, you know, continuing the Terranoff goodness is, is, is a return from the, the man and the machine <laughs> that is the Terranoff tinkerer himself. Um, I'm, I'm going to start calling him the Terranoff tinkerer of terror. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Chris Markham uh, with Terranoth Treasures Volume 2. Mm. This was a follow-up to his Terranoth Treasures Volume 1. Um, this new volume brings us another 15 additional Terranoth magic items, each one derived from previous lore in the Terranoth setting world, uh, from games like Runebound and Descent. Mm. Uh, but you know, now, again, 15 new items with new art and rules adapted for Genesis. And just like Volume 1, each item is fully illustrated, and given specific components for GMs to use as adventure seeds and additional rewards for players who want to create their own items. Mm. And yes, you can use Volume 2 without Volume 1, but it is worth noting that Volume 1 does provide the additional crafting rules that Volume 2 does not have. Mm. New great entry from Chris coming in, $2.95. Yep. Now, Chris is also offering in his March Madness sale his entire catalogue, which is absolutely amazing. Uh, it includes uh, Ministries of Manara, Terranoth Taverns, 
Terranoth Treasures 1 and 2, and Zanagan Zoology Part 1. And it's only five bucks, uh, which is, is fantastic, so go and check that out. And uh, just while we're here, I just want to throw a big shout out to to many of the Genesis Foundry authors who've dropped their prices during the COVID-19 pandemic, since, you know, most people are going to be stuck at home uh, or should be stuck at home as part of the, uh, you know, the, the social isolation thing that they've got happening. So, uh, so well done to all of the authors. Uh, keep up the great work. And to our listeners, please support them uh, by, uh, by purchasing any material that you can. If you haven't got it already, uh, go and support the authors as well. Uh, a lot of people are struggling out there or will be in the not-too-distant future. So please, 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 please go and check those out. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you can uh, purchase it, great. Go go ahead and do that. Now, you can also find these and many more great Genesis Foundry content over at drivethroughrpg.com by simply performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. And while you're surfing the web, why not jump over and become a supporter of The Forge by joining our Patreon? $2 a month, that's all we ask. You can access our dedicated Discord server where you can interact with fellow forgers. No. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's not good. Mm, yeah. Look, the latest one is Smith's, which I thought was interesting. Uh, but then somebody else suggested that you and I should be the uh, the the blacksmiths, and um, you know, hopefully, I'm getting forgings moving forward. Uh, I'm pushing for that forgings. Love it. <laughs> right. <-o. laughs> Anyway, higher tiers provide priority for your game and rules questions for the Patreon. Uh, with our largest tier, not only giving you a special thank you at the top of the show, but also a special monthly get-together with either Huli or myself to discuss your Foundry product or your campaign. Uh, but no matter what, anything you can spare to show your support to us is really appreciated. And please know that all of your donations do help the podcast directly so that we can continue to provide you with excellent regular Genesis content. Mm. And don't forget that um, coming up in the not-too-distant future, we'll be um, talking about the Forge Awards. And the only way that uh, you can vote in the Forge Awards is to become a Patreon. And that's at any level. So, uh, as Chris said, for only $2 a month, you can have the uh, the rights to vote in the Forge Awards. But we'll talk about that um, closer to the event. But join the Forge community by becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Okay, Huli. Are you ready to cast a magic spell and get to rocking and a rolling? Indeed I am, Chris. Time to get into some die casting. Die casting. So the Forge podcast is nothing if not all about bringing new creations to the table. And the Genesis RPG provides us all with a powerful set of tools to do so, specifically skills and talents. Our die casting segment is about closely examining individual skills and individual talents and how they relate to the creations you craft. Last episode, we took a look at the vehicle handling skills in Genesis, driving, piloting, operating, and we explored varied ways to use those skills in your creations for the Foundry and in your own campaigns, mm. including some brand new gear and equipment to boost those skills for days. <laughs> but tonight, by listener request, we are returning the discussion to talents mm. with a transformative peak <laughs> at the shapeshifter talents from realms of terror oh dear you're a goose um <laughs> that's right chris tonight we'll be going to dig into a pair of unusual talents with strong some might say overpowered but as chris says we'll come to that 
mechanical benefits that represent some of the more classic tropes in fantasy, horror, and weird fiction, and of course, role-playing. The ability to shapeshift into another creature. How do these talents work? How can you and should you properly represent them in your games? Not only is there a right and a wrong way to utilize these talents in a balanced way, but a clever GM can also make them an exciting focal point into their campaign. All right, Julie. So let's talk about the basics. What are these talents? How do they work? All right. So first of all, both of these talents are located in Realms of Terranos. It's on page 84 and 89, respectively. Uh, This means they were designed for a fantasy setting and can consequently be used in, in any fantasy game that you're running. But as we'll see, they can easily be pulled into just about any setting of any kind. So the first one that we have is uh, the shapeshifter talent. So it's a tier one. Its activation is passive and it's non-ranked. And it says when your character is incapacitated due to having exceeded their strain threshold, while in their normal form, they undergo the following change as an out-of-turn incidental. They heal all strain, increase their brawn and agility by one to a maximum of five, and reduce their intellect and willpower by one to a minimum of one. They deal plus one damage when making unarmed attacks, and their unarmed attacks have a critical rating of three, but they cannot use magic skills or make ranged attacks. Your GM should ensure that uh, NPCs react appropriately to this, at the very least, upgrading the difficulty of social skill checks twice. Your character reverts to their normal form after eight hours, or if they become incapacitated, for instance, by exceeding their wound or strain threshold. So let's so let's talk about this talent. Uh, you know, it's obviously designed to represent uh, characters who have you know, um, a wear disease, uh, you know, classically speaking, it's it's lycanthropy. So let's talk about that first. Well, yeah, because the thing is, like, this talent is, um, it doesn't mention lycanthropy. It doesn't even talk about any narrative implications of the transformation. Much is left to the mind of the reader. Okay, and that's that's quite intentional. This talent is quite generic. Intentionally so, in true Genesis fashion. Is the character a werewolf? Are they a were bear? Are they a were rat, a were toad, a were turtle? Uh, <laughs> I mean, and, why not? Why not? I mean, the point is anything the narrative and the setting allows for, this talent is designed to accommodate. Now, what's interesting to me, Huli, is when you compare this, because we kind of have to, to mm. Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. Um, because D&D classically had you know radically different templates and abilities for every where creature under the sun <laughs> um i mean what were all the where creatures in dnd over there i mean there was i mean the werewolf werebear wereboar were lion were tiger were rat were toad were falcon i've seen that one um just on and on and on yeah yeah you could always go to um the x-files where they did a were human which was a bear who got lycanthropy and, and um, transformed into a, I think it was, a, or it might have been a wolf. I can't remember what the episode was, but um, it was in, it was when X-Files got rebooted. Um, and uh, yeah. it was uh, the guy from Flight of the Concords. And, 
and he was playing a weird human. But anyway, it was hilarious. <laughs> it's it's absolutely, it's absolutely fantastic. You know, but like when, when you can when you look at how D and D did that, and they had these different mm. templates and rules for every single different type of wear creature. Um, you see this. Compare that to this. Mm. This is this upscale simplification that Genesis is quite frankly known for. Mm. Mm. Um, it, ke- it keeps things simple by having the the thing that you shape shift into be whatever that thing is, wolf, bear, tiger, whatever, mm-hmm. narratively. But mechanically, there is a simple, uniform benefit. Yep, yep, absolutely. But, uh, you know, we need to talk about how this talent is used and uh, the benefits of it, and, of course, its drawbacks that uh, that it provides, because this is something that... Uh, you know, a lot of players, for whatever reason, want to play some sort of a, a weird creature, uh, and this is a, this is a great thing for that. Uh, it also can represent, to an extent, um, you know, sort of uh, shape shifting abilities like similar to polymorph, I guess, um, that uh, that aren't necessarily, or even if we talk about Harry Potter. You know, it's um, it's that um, non-spell sort of way that um, uh, Professor McGonagall turns into a cat, that sort of thing as well. So there's um, yeah, there's a few ways to look at that. But um, yeah, so let's look at that. So first of all, when you talk about the benefits, can we talk about the fact that this is a five XP talent, <laughs> tier one talent? Yep. That its mechanical benefit for five XP allows you to recover. All your spit strength, <laughs> all of it, when you exceed your threshold, and then you come back fresh as a daisy, <laughs> tougher, faster, and with deadly natural attacks. <laughs> Is this overpowered, though? That's that's the question, and. Uh... And I don't think it is, uh, you know, assuming the GM considers and, and upholds the, the second part of the talent, uh, because uh, this is one of the few times that we see a narrative drawback to what is really a mechanical boon. Uh, you know, being a shapeshifter is supposed to be scary. It's supposed to be frightening. And uh, it's, it's looked down upon socially. So to have that, uh, that last segment there, which talks about, you know, uh, upgrading the difficulty of any social skills twice, it totally makes sense. If you've got someone who is, you know, fighting in a, in a throne room and suddenly goes down and all of a sudden just turns into a, you know, a, a werebear, you know, <laughs> it's not as though they're going, oh, welcome, uh, Mr. Werebear, uh, please carry on fighting. You know, people will be freaking out out <laughs> and let's let's be clear when we look at the talent description here it says it doesn't say hey also upgrade the difficulty for social skills sex twice it says at the very least yeah. <laughs> it says specifically it's in the book at the very least yeah. upgrading the difficulty of social skill checks twice that's at the very least because if it becomes known what you are a mm. a a shape shifter okay mm. It's it's torch wielding mob time, man. <laughs> yep, and you like, find yourself living in a swamp. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's what happens. So so is this talent overpowered? No, because it has that narrative consequence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> God, I also think, Huli, this is exacerbated by the fact that um, 
many times this shape shift transformation is involuntary. Yep. Yep. I mean, you, you know, I mean, you can make yourself spend all your strain, I guess, but if it just happens naturally and you don't want it to, you're hosed. And once it happens, you can't physically end it until, you know, eight hours have passed or you pass out, whichever comes. <laughs> That's right. And there's a lot of people, uh, a lot of players that I think use it as a bit of a, 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 I guess they use it as a way to get your uh, your uh, your character back up again. Uh, virtually, uh, I guess, when it comes to it, uh, they're, they're doubling their strain threshold. But, uh, you know, smart, clever GMs, as you've said in the past, you know, good GMs doing good GM things, that you're not going to allow that to sort of happen in a bubble. You're going to be really focusing in on that in the storyline to make things very, very difficult. And that may be a case that at some point you need to find a cure or something like that, especially if the player really sort of says, yeah, I thought this talent did something that it doesn't obviously do. Um, well, it does, but it's making things very, very difficult in the campaign. Maybe I want to try to find a cure. And you can that can obviously create an entire adventure behind that. And, it, uh, you know, it may be a case that um, you swap out that five um, XP talent and things like that. So there's there's quite a number of options there. Yes. Now, one quick point that, that I really want to make, and this is something for GMs to consider, especially if you want to force a PC to, you know, change involuntarily and you want a really good way of doing that. You know, uh, you want them to, you know, reveal their hand, so to speak. Uh, like this is a this is a tactic that uh, would be something that you know perhaps a sinister nemesis would would do to reveal the truth of a character's origins to to uh, a crowd of people or to jurors on uh, in some sort of trial, like in a in a Salem witch trial esque sort of story that you're telling where this particular NPC might be attempting to, you know, gain some sort of support for running the PCs out of town so that they're no longer in the way of his, you know, dastardly plan. And the way to do that is through social encounters, mainly because social encounters don't target wounds. They target strain. So to get that NPC to uh, to learn the shape-shifting PC's flaws and fears with their advantages and triumphs during socials checks, th- that's something that, you know, that they start pushing that PC's buttons so that their strain drops and they're targeting all the time because they're the, they know, perhaps, that the PC does transform because they may have seen them sort of hiding away in the villages or, or uh, in the forests or whatever else while they're doing this transformation. And they really want to get into that stage where they can get rid of the PCs effectively. So suddenly your, your social encounter has the potential to go horribly wrong when it's in the middle of, you know, whether it be a court trial or whatever else. And then suddenly, because their strain drops below zero, because they've been targeted with, um, you know, some sort of social talent or, or, or some, sort of, some sort of social attack, that suddenly they transform into this abomination. That's the sort of story that keeps players on edge and makes for truly epic adventures that will they will remember for a long time to come and they'll talk about that uh, endlessly so that's that's something else to consider but anyway i digress 
Now, for those shifters out there, those shapeshifters, hmm. who who maybe get a bit, a bit of a better handle on their condition, we have the next uh, published talent, mm-hmm. which is Improved Shapeshifter, no? Mm-hmm. That is correct. Now, it's a Tier 2 talent. Its activation is Active Incidental. So it's non-ranked, and it says once per session, your character may make a hard, that's three purple dice, a hard discipline check as an out-of-turn incidental either to trigger Shapeshifter or to avoid triggering it when they exceed their strain threshold. So this talent represents the Shapeshifter having some level of control over their transformation. Um, you know, you can, you can will it to happen or you can will it not to happen. And that can be really, really important. <laughs> the interesting thing, though, um, which is a question that we've sort of had before, is, uh, you know, when it comes to, to this side of things, it's an incidental. So if you suddenly, if your strain threshold drops, um, or it goes over your strain threshold, you know, how do you actually activate an incidental? I'm sure we'll get onto that question shortly. <laughs> no, we, we can we can talk about that now. I mean, listen, the 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 talent, the only the only way that that the the only the only it, like the only way you it, it specifically says that you can make this check in order to avoid triggering it. Mm. The only way to, to trigger it is to exceed your strain threshold. Yep. I don't think the designers intended to set up a trigger condition that couldn't be fulfilled. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So as as a GM, yeah, I mean. Don't nitpick over the over the minutiae too much. Well, he can't take an incidental. He's unconscious. <laughs> no, before he drops, he can will it not to happen. That's yeah, exactly. the intent of the talent. Yeah. And the other thing as well that you have to take into consideration is that, uh, you know, strain, exceeding a strain threshold doesn't necessarily mean that you've fallen unconscious. It can be that you're in a comatose state. So you're still awake, but you're just exhausted or you know, comatose or, or whatever. It doesn't mean that you just fall unconscious. Exceeding your strength threshold means one only one thing. You are incapacitated. Yep. Then okay, that's it. That could be unconscious. That could be I'm so exhausted I can't move, but I'm still awake. Yep. Okay. Um, you know, and, and that's yeah, it, it could mean all those things. Hmm. So now we know what these two talents are and, uh, you know, the wording and, and how they sort of, they operate. But how do they actually work in the games that you're playing? So I think it goes without saying that any fantasy game or even, quite frankly, even a modern or a future game with horror elements. Mm. Um, and, and of course, of course, Weird War. This yeah. is a <laughs> Weird War. I mean, any, any of those settings, uh, settings can can shoehorn the shapeshifter condition and its corresponding talents quite nicely don't you think mm, absolutely if you look at um dog soldiers for example you know i oh, can i can oh. very great film um you know i can very much see a a weird war um story revolving around werewolves that are soldiers did you see uh, on netflix did you ever watch love death and robots i did yes yes and they have they had that short. It was kind of like dog soldiers. The idea that the like werewolves are real, man. Yep. And and oh by the way, they're they were you know and they're prejudiced against just as they should be. And I mean like like not as they should be, but you know you know what I mean as as yeah. it's fitting for the the story and the reality of the world, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um and and but of course it's you know if these things really existed, you better believe the military would draft them. <laughs> oh, hell yes. <laughs> 
there was this awesome short where uh, basically they they're they're in like Afghanistan. Yep. And and it, and it becomes this awesome werewolf fight, and it was wicked. <laughs> that that whole series is just amazing. It's very it's very R rated, but um, yeah. the the stories that they tell are amazing. It was episode ten, and it was actually entitled Shapeshifters. Right. Makes sense. All right. <laughs> uh, so so, dude, yeah, just uh, abs- yeah. Anyway, so yeah, dude, yeah, you can shoot it in. But mm. like, okay, Cooley, from a you know, if you're wanting to use these talents in your games. Talk to me, like, I mean, character option. Talk to me about character options and GM options here. If I'm, if I'm a character and, and you know, what, how, how, what's going to work best for me as a concept if I want to use these talents? Yeah. So, obviously, when we, when we start talking about, uh, you know, the abilities that they're going to get, mechanically speaking, the character who is a merely machine is going to really benefit from this and, you know, may even actively seek that talent out. I think that this sort of talent works best if it's purchased at the start. And I think that that's something that we see uh, Scott Zumwalt do in on um, Something Strange. You, you know, like, you really need to impose this talent at the start of the campaign where a PC's backstory indicates that, you know, that they've been bitten by a werewolf or, or have always been a werewolf as part of some sort of a clan or something like that. Or, or even perhaps that you, you don't, that they don't even know that, you know, that they are some sort of vicious creature like a half vampire or, or something like that. I guess what I'm trying to say is that have the PCs make it be part of the character's backstory. Uh, and then when they want to purchase the talent as well, because, you know, having characters with that talent at the start should be part of their backstory. And likewise, if they, uh, you know, if they, they want to purchase it during the story, have them give a reason why. And it could be for any reason, but it really does need to be some sort of a reason for, for having this ability in the first place. And that's something which is really important, I think. Uh, otherwise, you know, the talent doesn't make sense. And, and this talent is really only for Weird War anyway. But uh, as we've sort of like pointing out, that it does expand beyond that. But anyway, I got sidetracked. So where was I? Um, oh, that's right. The the Millie Machine. Now, when we talk about the Millie Machine and, and what they can get out of this talent, we've got in amongst there. You know, we've got uh, the second wind of strain recovery that I mentioned before that, uh, you know, you you might have 15 strain threshold and then suddenly you drop and then all of a sudden it's back up again. Um, it doesn't say that it does that to your wounds. Um, so you're going to be wanting to be dodging out of the way and hopefully, you know, have a good soak and things like that. But it also provides uh, an extra boost to brawn uh, and a natural attack as well. And that's massive. Especially if you've, uh, you know, you're you're into brawling, you're into some sort of melee. It's absolutely amazing, and uh, you know, you don't care about the lack of magical ranged attacks really if you're the melee combatant, because the chances are that uh, you know most magic users aren't going to be uh, the sort of characters that are going to be getting into the thick of it, which is what these sort of characters really are. And, uh, you know, also the physically weaker, for example, um, uh, like, you know, your egghead type characters, they really have a 5 XP method to become a terrifying physical combatant 
uh, when the chips are really down. So if you've got a scenario where everybody's out for the count and suddenly the only person that's left um, is the, the spellcaster and they're out of strain, run into battle, get hit, um, hopefully, you know, or, or go and take an extra melee or, or whatever else and get that strain down to, to zero. And then all of a sudden, it's back up again. Yeah. You obviously, you can't be casting any more spells, but uh, again, it's sort of to go back to that second wind type of scenario. You've suddenly gone from a magic blasting uh, range combatant to a, uh, a melee combatant. And if you've got all of the NPCs that are sort of, all oh, right, he's running away um, and uh, he's keeping his distance, so we're going to go over to bows and arrows. Well, if you're suddenly moving into into close combat, they're going to have to be swapping weapons. And that means, especially when we're talking about minions, is that they're going to run out of things to do before you can get in there and start hacking and slashing. So, uh, so yeah. You know, I think of I think of um, I think of Bruce Banner. Right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> you, you talk. You know, you're, you're this egghead scientist, mm. and you're this little wimpy dude. It's like mm. you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and 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 when he gets pushed, he, he just ah. Now I saw some discussion online around somebody exploring the possibility of saying. You know, well, I don't like the fact that you can't cast spells. You know, it, it would it be okay to house rule this where you can still cast spells? Short answer, no. Uh, <laughs> highly do not recommend that. No. <laughs> um, if, if, you, if you really want to go for a druidic character, there are some wonderful talents in the Expanded Player's Guide that will let you do that mm. and handle that type of shape changing um, yeah. with still retaining a modicum of magical capability. Mm-hmm. But those talents are costed appropriately. This is not to be able to do that because <laughs> because strain explosion and strain depletion is one of the balancing aspects of the magic system in Genesis. Mm. So if I can take a 5 XP talent that will let me spam a bunch of spells and then come back up and spam a bunch of more, that becomes broken. Yeah. So do, do, do not recommend that at all. Mm. But. Because that's one that's one interesting thing that you're suggesting there, Chris, as well, is that if you're running a superhero campaign, something simple like this represents the Hulk really, really well. Um, yeah, for, yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously it's not the capabilities of the Hulk, right? But No, but... but um, you know, at least narratively speaking. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about character options, though, Chris. What about GM options? What are, what are some of the things that uh, can be done that way? Oh, man. Well, honestly, uh, you, you kind of hinted at it earlier. Giving giving shapeshifter to a threat, I think, is a fantastic and scary idea. <laughs> you know, when when the threat is down, at least from strain, mm. they come back up and just wear out. Okay, Hulk <laughs> out. Um, that that that's that, that can be really fun in an encounter. Mm. Um, just make sure you plan for that appropriately um, when you come to designing the threats in the encounter. Mm. And I don't know, man. My brain goes to all kinds of things with a GM. If you have this kind of thing, if you have shape-shifting in your world, in your setting, uh, develop some organizations, both maybe benevolent or malicious, yep. around the concept that you can populate your campaign with. You know, you know the Brotherhood of Shifters, right? You know, where, where those that are, you know, maybe, maybe banding together for survival and maybe others who are more nefarious and are like, you know, yes, we can use this power. You know, to you know, um, I think of uh, for those who've played uh, Elder Scrolls Skyrim, the Companion Guild, the Companions, 
um, yeah. where all the top members are all freaking werewolves, you know, and that's like a secret, you know, but it's their <laughs> it's their juice. It was, it's what gives them their power and their moxie. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, you could have a lot of fun. With, I mean, what about you as a GM? How do you see fitting this in? Well, one of the things that uh, that I've actually done myself, um, mainly with Pathfinder, but I can certainly see it um, coming across over to this using this this talent specifically um, is um, Pathfinder had an, an adventure path called Carrion Crown. Uh, it was very sort of horror filled, and they sort of looked at every single possible you know uh, horror trope that they could throw in. Um, and there was a section, I think it was the, the middle adventure, and it was probably one of my favorites, where they've, uh, they've gone through this really deep sort of dark forest. Uh, and there was a lodge in the middle of, uh, of the forest in the middle of nowhere. Spoilers for anyone who, uh, who, um, hasn't yet played this, but, um, you know, go and check it out. It is really good. Um, anyway, so, uh, in amongst all of this, there was this clan war that was going on with several groups of different types of werewolves. Um, you know, the, with the evil ones that were all about, um, you know, turning people and then enslaving them uh, and having fun with them while they're, they're watching them turn. Uh, there were groups that were actually lawful good, for those who are familiar with d and uh, that, um, you know, they were a noble um, a noble family of of wolves that they didn't believe in tainting the uh, the bloodline at all. So there's all sorts of things that you can do with feuds. I mean, we've got uh, werewolf uh, the apocalypse as well. You know that uh, that you can draw from uh, for the sort of stories. Um, what's another movie that um, uh, Underworld had a great idea behind? Uh, you know the werewolves and the vampires. Uh, so there's all sorts of things that they can do. It's amazing. Yeah, there's there's so much. And when, when also when we talk about so much, you 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 hinted at this before, Uli, but we we need to call it out. A major shout out is needed. We really can't have a conversation about these talents. We would be very remiss if we didn't also talk about the amazing werewolf talent sets um, that are available, uh, actually both in Scott Zumwalt's Something Strange setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then also replicated uh, in, in Guillaume Tardif's Inquisition setting. Yeah. If these two talents, uh, you know, uh, uh, Shapeshifter and, and Shapeshifter Improved, just don't cut it for you. If you really want to expand lycanthropy and shapeshifting as a primary focal point of your campaign mm. and your world, a, a, a major set of real character options that a PC can legitimately build their entire concept around their entire talent set around, then, guys, you should just simply purchase one of those settings from the Foundry <laughs> and you should call it a day, okay? <laughs> they have scores of talents that give real teeth, no pun intended, to this kind of concept. And, and for that and many other reasons, those are both really good products that are well worth the buy. Yeah. Um, so if, you know, if, if this isn't enough for you, we recommend that you really go there. Yeah. If you really want to detail this out, because they've done all the hard work, they've done all the play testing, and they're they're great, great talent. The, the werewolf talent set's amazing. It's really yeah. well done. Now, one of the things, uh, and we're sort of going off show notes here a little bit, but one of the things that that I've seen mentioned in the past, especially when it comes to uh, to GMs, um, is how do you handle uh, as far as like power levels or whatever else? How do how do you handle Characters that are wanting to uh, to to become a shapeshifter, 
Uh, you know, there's uh, it always used to be a classic trope in D and D that uh, you'd have some player who was just hell bent on becoming a werewolf, and all that he would do. Uh, would just run around the forest um, any time that they could to try to find a werewolf just so that they could get bit. Um, <laughs> I don't get the sense of why, but it's out there. I do. It's. I mean, it's. You, you get. I mean, I don't know. It's. 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 It's attractive. Um, well, especially a, with the special abilities and stuff like that. Sure, I get that. That's exactly what I mean. Mm. Um, you know the, the the talent doesn't have this, but there is no reason you can't do it as a GM. If a character is taking this talent at character creation, I mean, they're going to have a backstory as to how they have the shape-shifting capability. Yep. If it's a case of like, if it's a case of lycanthropy, maybe they were born with it. Maybe they were bitten at, in their youth or previously. Maybe that's the reason they had to leave their small hamlet and go become an adventurer, right? <laughs> um, and it's, it's they're considered a curse they're dealing with or or a, an ability they're still struggling to master. Yeah. Um, you know, for, if somebody wants to take it like later on in their career you are well within your rights as a GM to be like, okay, well, you need to contract it somehow. You need yeah. to get bitten, okay, by the appropriate thing, mm. or you need to be cursed, okay? Yeah. Um, you know, something to that effect. You need to go, you know, uh, go go piss off a gypsy, okay? and <laughs> 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 Right. Um, and, you know, and, and get cursed or, you know, wh- whatever it may be. But, you know, enforcing that narrative catalyst. This is one of those few talents that you can legitimately force a narrative prerequisite for. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that one of the things that, uh, that concerned uh, people uh, or with GM specifically is that how do you handle that in game? Uh, because these sorts of things can effectively, you know, as we've talked about already, where it's, it's doubling that strain threshold, you know, how do you deal with that in game? And I think that you just have to play it by ear. Uh, but the other thing to keep in mind is that it doesn't heal wounds. I said that earlier. That sure, you can have you know as much strain as you want, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to uh, you know be hacked to pieces and then get up and and you know walk again um, just because you're alive. <laughs> you know, uh, it really is the case that you need to couple that with something like regeneration as an ability. Yeah. Now, if you've got a uh, a character who has uh, regeneration because of the species that you've designed, um, you know, you really need to to think about how you're going to do that. And if it really does start to to break the game or whatever else, and because you can throw additional bad guys and um, you know additional minion groups, but you have to take into consideration the other players as well, and they may be overwhelmed because just because of the scenario that you're in, and suddenly you've just got you know four or five uh, of uh, of these minion groups attacking a small group of um, you know a rogue and a, and a magic user and a, a, a cleric type thing that if they're not prepared for that, you know, you might be able to survive for a, a little bit longer. But, um, yeah, that, there's just something to, to consider there as well. That's What's your thoughts on that, Chris? No, I agree. I mean, it's just something you kind of have to play it by ear and be conscious about. If you're going to include yeah. this ability in your game, you have to be ready for it. Yeah. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Um, you know, and but, but Hilda, you, you bring up a good point. Bad guys rarely attack your strain, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So, so it, it's 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 not so much that you need to worry about, you know, basically having an extra PC in the party, meaning somebody goes down and gets back up. 
it's 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 you know honestly i would be a little more worried about or i would be more prepared around the pc that's taken improved <laughs> so <laughs> yeah so i know oh boy he's gonna get an extra die to those pools you know uh, <laughs> when he hulks out okay that's kind of what you got to think about and, and keep in the back of your mind hmm. but again the system is flexible enough that it it, it it'll it'll work just fine yeah it really will but these are only two talents and as we like to do we would be remiss if we didn't throw our own custom talents into the ring, of course. But these few new talent options are by no means as detailed as the uh, the werewolf talents in Something Strange and Inquisition. Uh, they've been designed to follow the same generic simplicity of the two core talents that we see in Realms of Terranoth. But if you're a fan of Shapeshifter, these new options might give you you know, that, that wear character that you've always wanted to be playing a little bit more of an oomph. <laughs> so three new talents we have for you guys, and we're eager for you to get them on the playtest table. The first one is Shapeshifter Brute. <laughs> Tier 2, mm-hmm. activation passive, non-ranked. Your character must have purchased the Shapeshifter talent to benefit from this talent. Yep. <laughs> While Shapeshifted, your natural attacks gain an additional plus one damage, as well as the Pierce One and Vicious One qualities. Mm. Yeah. That could be nasty. <laughs> but I like yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, and definitely I think well-costed at 10 XP. Yep. You know, but it's one of those things also that, you know, you don't have to have the improved because this, it's one of those things that you just, you're, you're an enhanced shifter. Okay, Hmm. whether whether this is an intentional shift on your part or not, when you shift, you're going to be a lot more nasty, at least in terms of of being that brute of damage dealing. You know, you've got longer claws or sharper teeth or whatever it is. Hmm. So, yeah. So our next one is Shape Shifter Heritage. So it's a tier two. Its uh, activation is passive. It's non-ranked. Your character must have purchased the Shape Shifter talent to benefit from this talent. When you purchase this talent, select one of the abilities below. While shapeshifted, your character gains this extra ability. Uh, so there are four different uh, things that you can choose from. And the first one is Beast Hide, where your character increases their melee and range defense by one. An excellent addition. Uh, Night Vision, your character ignores any setback on skill checks due to darkness or low light. Nimble, your character does not suffer strain to take a second maneuver on their turn. An insane ability. And uh, Scent, your character gains two boost die on any check made to track a target where your character can reasonably follow the target's scent or unique smell. Great talent. And remember, (laughs) you can only choose it once and you get your choice of any of these four. Um, and you know, some people may say that for a tier two, it, you get two boost die. Remember that you do have to have the shapeshifter talent and everything else that goes along with it. Um, well, plus, and, plus it's two boost die in a very limited circumstance. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's not as bad. Um, I'm more scared about nimble to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I, I like this talent. The idea of 
when when again because we have to you compare it to dungeons and dragons where you have all these different types of where creature templates that each provide some type of subtly different special ability right right so how can you represent that you know well you can do it with this shapeshifter heritage it's like okay well narratively i'm a werebear okay so i i take this talent and i have beast hide okay mm. you know narratively i'm i'm a were rat so i have this night vision or i'm a werewolf so i have nimble Okay, or scent might be a better one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and that's, you know, th- that's, it's just kind of one way to kind of represent that narratively and um, add a nice little mechanical benefit. So, yeah. Mm. I agree. It's very, very cool. And, I mean, if you wanted to go down the path, you could all look at something like a were-hare or a were-rabbit. I know that's weird, but, um, you know, something like that. Um, were-gazelle. I'm just going crazy now. Um, <laughs> like, I, they wear rabbit. I think of Wallace and Gromit. That's all I can think of. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree. Um, so, uh, so you could add on uh, additional abilities there if you wanted to. They can only still select this talent once. But if you wanted to have something similar to uh, parkour or improve parkour, you could be adding in something like that as well um, to uh, to your campaign too. So, yeah, just a couple of things. Yeah. Absolutely. You want to hear hear my impression of Gromit? (laughs) Go on. (laughs) Okay, here you go. What do you think? (laughs) You're an idiot. (laughs) I think we've got another talent, Chris. (laughs) We do. Our last custom talent uh shapeshifter supreme Hmm. so we have we have a base talent we have an improved talent i had to come up with a supreme version of the talent right right right. now considering the benefit of it as we'll come to in a moment the base talent is tier one the improved version is tier two i first first off when we were designing we made this talent tier three and then we took a look at what it does and realized that that was a bit under cost (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it is a tier four. Yep. Um, it is active, incidental, non-ranked. And of course, your character must have purchased the shapeshifter improved talent to benefit from this talent. Mm. So you recall what shapeshifter improved does, Huli, right? Right. It allows you to choose um, whether you uh, change or not. Well, at least gives you the ability to uh, to make a check to see whether you choose. Exactly. And you could do that once per session. And it was a hard discipline check. Right. With Shapeshifter Supreme, using the Shapeshifter Improved Talent now requires only an average, that's two purple discipline check, mm-hmm. as an out-of-turn incidental, and may be attempted once per encounter instead of once per session. Wow. That's insane. And well, it's, um, it's too poor, man. <laughs> yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, the quote that comes to mind is, uh, you know, I've, um, uh, do you want to know my secret? I'm always angry. <laughs> So, you know, from uh, what was that? From that was from the first Avengers, I think it was, uh, from the Hulk. So, yeah, this is this is a really interesting. I mean, it's adding on from uh, from the previous improved version. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it makes it just that little bit easier. You you know, obviously, everything that we do is non play tested. This is just done in a vacuum between Chris and I. So, um, you know, try it out, see what you think. Is it a tier four? Is it a tier three? I definitely don't think it's a tier three, but <laughs> but perhaps it may be a tier five. I don't know. Try it out at uh, at home and let us know. Uh, we're we're keen to get this feedback, and uh, you know, as people would have seen, I'm I am 
playing catch up with uh, with the notes. So uh, you know, take a look at those. Uh, we will have them available for uh, after this uh, this episode with these uh, with these talents. So take a look and uh, let us know. And where can people find those notes with these talents, Uli? Well, they can just go to our website, which is forgegenesis.com, and go to the resource section, and it's uh, right at the top, uh, listed in uh, numerical order, so it's pretty easy to find. So uh, go and take a look. And I'm pretty happy with the way they're turning out, actually. Ooh, I am too. Uh, especially mm. the last few you published, they've been very well done. Yeah, yeah. So, thank you. <laughs> oh, oh, I love it. I love it. So good discussion, guys. And if you have any uh, any requests um, that you that you'd like us to to really tackle, uh, whether that be a, a talent or or a particular skill in the Stoking the Fire segment, let us know. Um, we'll have contact information at the end of the show. But the easiest way is to request it on social media, any social media platform. Just search for at Forge Genesis. And with that, Huli, I think it's time to pump the bellows and heat things up as we open up the furnace. The furnace. And welcome to The Furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. Tonight, we're going diving into the penultimate episode of what will become our six-part discussion on Magic System in Genesis. We first covered the basic principles of magic in episode eight, Demystifying the Mystical, part one, and we continued that discussion at episode 10, Demystifying the Mystical to Electric Boogaloo. And after you understood all of that, we finally began tackling the reskinning of the magic system entirely with episode 12, Demystifying the Mystical 3, Beyond Thunderdome, where we walked through the basic tenets of reskinning the magic system by creating a reskin of our own live on the show with a new system for post-apocalyptic mutations. We then continued that with episode 14, Demystifying the Mystical 4, So Long and Thanks for All the Mutations, looking at detailing out all of our spells, or as we dub them, powers. And in those last two magic episodes, we talked about the first four steps of magic reskin. One, roughing out the concept. Two, defining your skills. Three, defining your spells and talents, all of which were covered in episode 12. And then four, detailing your spells, which was episode 14, as Huli said. And we did this while building out our magic reskin of post-apocalyptic mutations. But tonight, we're going to tackle steps five and six of the reskin process. Step five detailing out your talents, and step six, defining your penalties and your threat and despair results. Outside of Implements, which will be our final magical episode in this series, this is really it when it comes to reskinning magic. Mm. And as a continual reminder, as Chris said, we've spent four whole episodes talking about how magic works and kicking off our reskinning task. As such, it goes without saying that before you listen to this episode, you really need to have listened to episodes 8, 10, 12, and 14. That's hours of listening pleasure. And while everybody's um, tied up with corona uh, and you have to stay at home, give those a listen. There you go. Um, (laughs) But you need to listen to all of those for it to all to make sense of much of what we're going to cover tonight and the logic behind our decisions. Uh, We're going to proceed assuming that you've already got those episodes under your belt and pick up right where episode 14 left off. Now, if you haven't caught up, be sure to give those episodes a listen, as I said, before you continue with this episode. Otherwise, you're probably going to get a little bit lost. Well, let's get right into it and continue with the reskin, folks, because we've got a few very important things to get Mm. to as we cap off the reskin of post-apocalyptic 
mutations. Mm. But first, but first, but first, <laughs> boilerplate. <laughs> It almost needs a title with it itself, doesn't it? Like a little soundbite. But anyway, well, I, I, can do, I can do like the like the you know like the boilerplate. <laughs> Love it. Boilerplate. Oh, that one's different. Hell, hell now, hell, oh, hell. Oh my god. Um, you see what I'm going to put up with, listeners? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so the the first rule of all of this is playtest, playtest, playtest. You know, we've said this in episode 12 and in episode 14, but we're going to say it again because of how important it is. What we're creating with this post-apocalyptic mutation reskin of Genesis Magic is a draft. We are creating it live as an example and teaching tool, but it is not ready to be played yet or is fit for a public table. We don't say public consumption because we want you to um, listen to this episode and we want you to really go through all of the the notes that we've created for it uh, when it goes live. Because all of this stuff has not been playtested. More than anything else, such deep new systems must be playtested as much as you can manage. This is not negotiable. So just so that we're clear, I'll say it again. It's not ready for a public table yet. Uh, it's not ready to be played. Take a look at it. Give us feedback. We really, really want it. We'll talk more about that at the end of the segment. So, you know, just keep that in mind uh, that this is a huge multi-episode creation effort uh, and it will still hinge on ultimate refinements and changes that have to come after playtesting. Indeed. So shall we review very quickly? Back in uh, in episode 12 and 14, we began the process of a fresh new reskin turning magic into post-apocalyptic mutations. <laughs> uh, we went through the first three steps. Um, step step one, rough out your concept. We define mutations and what they were conceptually. <laughs> step two, uh, define your skills. We decided, Huli, on three skills, did we not? That's right. We listed psionics, which was presence-based, and that's used for psychic powers. We had metabolics, which is a willpower-based skill. And it's, uh, it's used for bodily mutations that are going to enhance what the body already does naturally. Uh, and then our last skill was aberrantics, which is a cunning-based. And it's used for physical mutations that provide entirely new non-natural capabilities. In other words, the weird. Exactly. Step three we went through, which was to define your spells and your talents. Mm -hmm. um, from the key effects that we identified back in step one, when we roughed out the concept. We settled on the very specific concrete effects that we wanted represented in our spells, which we then rechristened as powers mm -hmm. and, and what we kind of also wanted to see in our talents. Yep. Then we did step four, which was last episode. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that was to detail out the spells. So in our case, powers. Uh, we went hardcore and and fully designed and fleshed out the base effects, both narrative and uh, and in structured encounters, of each of the powers and the additional effect tables for each and every one. Uh, so these uh, these powers that we've created are block, which is used by metabolics and psionics. Uh, it's a defensive power similar to the barrier spell. We had enhance, which is metabolics only. Uh, and it's a self-buffing power similar to how the augment spell works. Uh, we then had strike, which is aberrantics and psionics. And it's a, you know, deal damage to others power. Obviously, it's similar to the attack spell. 
And what were the others, Chris? Well, we had survive could be uh, manifested with aberrantics or metabolics. It was a, a brand new power with aspects of the heal spell. But uh, most importantly, especially when it comes to the additional effects, was really about reducing or ignoring dangerous environmental conditions. Mm. Then we had the telekinesis power, which could only be accessed with psionics, mm -hmm. which was a brand new power reskinned from the brand new telekinesis spell that we <laughs> created on the air in episode eight. <laughs> and then we had the, the last power, which was called weird um, aberrantics only. And it, it's a generalist power, uh, very similar to the utility spell. Yeah. Um, in terms of the the things it can do, yeah. and and that's really got a one minute summary of <laughs> three hours of conversation last episode. <laughs> um, quite quite amazing. Absolutely. So we now have to go through step five, as we've said before, which is detail out the talents. So now that we've finished step four, uh, detailing out your spells in episode 14, it's time for us to really go in and detail out the talents and how they're going to work in uh, with, with the, uh, the powers that we've created. Now, what's important to note, as we said back in episode 12, that these steps are not always sequential. Yes, we are doing it that way because it makes better radio. <laughs> But uh, in reality, you are often tackling them both at the same time because one informs the other and vice versa. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the first thing to do in detailing out your talents is to go all the way back to step one and review the original concepts you came up with. Hmm. Now is that time to, to, to go back, review all, all the ideas and abilities that you laid out. Um, all the things you wanted your power source to accomplish. Mm. Because when it comes to talents that are related to the res this, the, your, your reskin of magic, they should typically focus on one of two things, okay? Mm. The first thing is the talent typically will either modify or enhance the usage of spells, okay, in our case, powers, mm. all right? Mm. Remember, talents like this are designed typically to break the balanced choices that you made in core mechanical design. Talents are what allow exceptions to the balanced rules you created. That's the point of a talent. Why do we let PCs break those beautifully balanced rules? Because they paid good XP to do it. That's what a talent is. Yep. Okay? Yep. The second thing for these types of talents is, okay, first, first category is they're either going to modify or enhance the usage of your spells, okay, mm -hmm. or in our case, powers. Yep. The second category is they're gonna is they're gonna provide generic or or static benefits related to your power source specifically. Mm. This is for those times that you want your power source, um, you know, magic, you know, in our case, mutation, mm. to provide a benefit that is not something a normal person could do. <laughs> you have to be magical to do it, or in our case, you have to be mutated to do it. Yeah. But but it isn't as powerful or quite frankly discreet. As an actual spell, or in our case, power. I mean, does that does that make sense, Uli? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as uh, you'll hear, no doubt, uh, our talents are no exception, and they do follow this. Um, also, when it comes to creating our own talents for a reskin, the the following precepts are are those we consider to be best practices. And boy, are they going to sound familiar. <laughs> <laughs> So, so what's our first one, Chris? Beg, borrow, and steal. Um, 
Uh, literally, this means you guys, you guys are going to see this with our talents that we did for mutations. Hmm. This literally means filing the serial numbers off of an existing talent. Existing talents have already been play tested. They have already been balanced. Why fix what isn't broken? Change as little as you can. Gamers and aspiring designers have a huge problem with this. Hmm. They, they, they see an existing talent. They're like, oh, I like that, but I'm going to make a quick change to it. Uh, it's like, why? <laughs> it's one less thing you don't have to be worried about playtesting to the same degree, man. Yep. Why? There's no reason for it. No reason whatsoever. No, yeah. re- no reason. No reason. <laughs> so yeah, number one, beg, borrow, and steal. Yep. So yeah, so change as little as you can. It's as simple as that. Um, the second uh, rule for this is the KISS theory, which I always, always use. So keep it simple, stupid. So, you know, I don't know why, but gamers have a, a wonderful habit of overcomplicating things for the sake of being hyper accurate or to account for every scenario possible. You know, it is in, in human nature. I guess it is in gaming nature uh, to do these sorts of things. But if you can simplify a talent by hand waving away edge case scenarios, then do it. Uh, you know, simpler is going to be better. If there are going to be those, you know, uh, side issues that, that pop up, that's stuff that the GM can rule on the fly. Uh, you know, they should be running their games with a no open book policy anyway, that, uh, you know, that they shouldn't need to be book diving. It's as simple as that. Let them sort of detail out and then start to make a, uh, a ruling. And then at the end of the session, you can start doing things like, okay, let's have a discussion about that and let's make a ruling on it. Um, so, yeah, simpler is going to be better. Absolutely. And then the third and final best practice rule of thumb when it comes to talent creation. Number three, don't go crazy. <laughs> we were speaking to a, a listener a while back, not directly. He, he posed a question to us, if you recall, yep. um, that we had in the end of the hammer segment. Mm-hmm. And, and the listener had created over a hundred talents for his setting. Yeah. That's, that's just too much. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, you can't reasonably play test all of that. Not accurately. No. Uh, not if you want to release the product anytime soon. Mm. Second of all, your players are just going to experience overload. They're not going to read all that. They're mm-hmm. just not. Mm-hmm. The books already have scores of talents. I mean, look, and, and to put this in, put, to put this in context, even the expanded player's guide, a published generic book with a dedicated chapter entirely on magic. Do you know how many new magic focused talents it introduced, Huli? <laughs> there was, a, from my understanding, uh, there was only 20 magic focused talents. Oh, 20. Only 20. It's, it's like Realms of Terranoth. It only had 12 talents dealing with actually using magic. And that book introduced both runic and verse casting. So, <laughs> you know, so there isn't a reason to, as you say, go crazy. You know, you don't need that. Um, you know, your, your sweet spot should be about a dozen or fewer talents that relate to your reskin. You know, maybe a few more than that, maybe a few less. But maybe, you know, maybe, rem- maybe. <laughs> you know, the key, th- the, the key thing to remember is that th- this is we're talking about talents that are specific to the magic reskin, though, right? Right. 
not mm. the setting as a whole that you are likely to be putting those talents in. Right. Okay. In the, in the case of a brand new setting, you want to shoot for typically under 20 new talents, you know, mm. 20 to 30. That's kind of what we talked about. Mm. Okay. For, for, and that, that's for a comprehensive, you know, 100 page setting compendium. So consider that. Do you really want 50 to 75% of the new talents in your setting <laughs> to be focused on the magic reskin that you have as a part of that setting? No. <laughs> okay. So so consider that as well. I mean, and yet, yeah, Huli's got the Huli's got the got the crux of it. 12 is the magic number. Mm. You, or less. Or yeah. less. Mm. Again, don't go crazy. Keep it simple, stupid, and <laughs> beg, borrow, and steal. So now that we know our talents for post-apocalyptic mutations are going to be in one of two categories, let's apply those best practices and share with you what we've actually come up with. So um, the first one that we came up with um, is uh, we'll actually go through these in tiers. It's probably the easiest way. Yeah. So for the the tier one talent um, is aberrantic insight. So it's a tier one, as I said, Activation is active incidental, and it's non-ranked. And it says, when a mutation power you manifest with aberrantics adds a quality to your character's power with a rating determined by your character's ranks in discipline, your character may use their ranks in survival instead. Now, this is a reskin of the, of the Dark Insight talent from Realms of Terranoth. And it's a talent that breaks the advice we gave that, that led to the determination to use discipline for additional effects in the first place. And really, that's the point. It, it only applies to aberrantic powers. And, uh, you know, uh, survival made the most sense as it's still not overpowered as far as a secondary skill option goes. Yeah. So, yeah, it, uh, to me, this is a, a, a nice talent that sort of allows if. If you're a character that has really sort of focused on 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 survival, um, and let's face it, in this sort of an environment, in this post-apocalyptic setting, chances are that survival is going to be a very, very useful skill for you. Yeah, absolutely. And in that same vein, we had aberrantic insight. We then have metabolic insight. Mm. Same thing. Tier one, active activation, incidental, non-ranked. And when a mutation power you manifest with metabolics adds a quality to your character's power with a rating determined by your discipline, your character may instead use their ranks in resilience. Mm. So it's the same thing, aberrantic insight, but it's for metabolic powers specifically. And you're replacing that secondary skill for additional effects is now instead of discipline, it can be resilience. Yeah. And, and again, same same, same reskin only applies to metabolics powers and resilience made sense Again, yep. is that still not overpowered secondary skill option? Yeah. When when you think about the characteristics that are commonly associated with these skills, mm -hmm. you know, di discipline discipline's a tough one. It's a tough one for everyone but psionics. Okay. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's like you know, if, if you're an aberrantic user or a metabolic mutant uh, uses metabolics, um, you know, it's like God, discipline really? Well, I guess I'm never adding those additional effects. <laughs> this is what you know, like we we have that there for balance reasons. But you know what? You throw five XP at this, and you can break that a little bit, and yep. maybe go for ranks that you're in, in a skill you're more likely to take. Mm. Okay, agree. So very, very good. And of course, we would be amiss if we didn't have one for psionics as well, uh, where we've created psionic insight. 
And to that end, we created Psionic Insight. Now, like its siblings, it's a tier one talent. Its activation is active incidental and it's non-ranked. And again, same process uh, as before, that when a mutation power you manifest with psionics adds a quality to your character's power with a rating determined by your character's ranks in discipline, your character may use their cool instead, <clears throat> which, uh, you know, that sort of makes sense to me as well. And, and cool is also a skill that doesn't get used very often. Yeah. Everybody's always, you know, into the, the whole vigilance type thing. But cool is something that... You know, you're you're going to have to be keeping really sort of focused. And uh, yeah, cool makes the most sense, especially if you're dealing with everything around you and you have to keep hyper focused because this is a mental power that you're utilizing. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, definitely. Yeah, it may make good sense. And so those three tier one talents really fall into that first category of talents that we talked about, you know, where basically mm-hmm. you're, you're modifying or enhancing the usage of spells. The last yep. tier one talent we have really falls into the second category, which is the generic or the static benefit related to the power source. And this mm-hmm. one came right out of our step one discussions. If you'll remember, Huli, this is <laughs> healing factor. Yeah. Tier one, activation passive, and it is a ranked talent. Okay. Mm-hmm. When your character has a full night's rest, in addition to the one wound healed, your character heals two additional wounds for each rank of this talent. Mm. So this was not a reskin. This was a brand new talent we crafted that's really designed to represent passive mutant healing capability. Obviously, we we have the survive power. It can be used to heal. But even if you don't have ranks in any of the the mutation skills that could give you access to the survive power, Mm. um, which is just metabolics or aberrantics, you could still be a mutant. And you can have a mutant healing factor, a mutation. And this is really what that kind of represents. Yep. And, you know, if, if you play that, I think it's actually fairly well costed. You know, if you get five ranks in this, yeah, man, you'd be healing an extra 10 wounds a night. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. At that point, you've got a, you've paid for a tier one, a tier two, a tier three, a tier four and a tier five talent. Not to mention the pyramid underneath that you need to get all the way there. Absolutely. So this is, it may seem like two wounds, that's huge. But when you also think about it, uh, if you've got somebody who, uh, in, a, in a fantasy campaign, um, you know, they can keep pumping out healing as, as much as they want. <laughs> um, and they, if they rest overnight, so they can spend all of their, their strain to, to heal everybody in the party. And then they rest overnight. And all of the, you know, the meat shields, they all um, keep watch while the uh, while the the magic user or the or the cleric or, or whatever that has heal, that um, they can rest, and so they've got all their strain back for the following day. So um, this is just a, an interesting way to, uh, as you say, Chris, to, to give mutants just that little bit of a helping hand. Give a helping hand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I I liked it. This seemed very flavorful as well. Yeah. And especially when you talk about the theme that we went for for post-apocalyptic, all right? Mm -hmm. And even even leaving the reskin and talking about the setting as a whole, this focus on self-reliance, okay? Mm. You know, the lone wasteland survivor wandering, you know? Um, (laughs) I don't know. It seemed very fitting. Yeah, absolutely. And look, um, you know, like anything, and and this is something that I think every single product that I've ever seen on the Foundry say, that if you want to, you know, beg, borrow and steal, 
from these other supplements. This is a great one if you're wanting to do a superhero setting where you've got someone who has a high healing factor that isn't necessarily regeneration as such that uh, where they don't have to rest. But certainly this sort of thing would apply to superheroes who don't have regeneration as part of their, like uh, the Flash, for example. Um, I mean, his is uh, is speed related because of his metabolism. Yeah. But you can have healing factor and you just have a, a narrative sort of feel to it. Yeah, this is a this is a good you know the, the Flash would just have this talent with several ranks in it basically. Yeah, the guy the guy's basically fully healed after a night's rest when you get down to it. Yeah, he, he's not Wolverine, okay? No, <laughs> <laughs> um, that would be very very different. But uh, yeah. but but yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay, does this bring us to our tier two talents? It does. It does. So our first tier two is evolved mutation. Um, so its activation is passive, it's uh, not a ranked talent, and it says when your character gains this talent, decide on one evolved mutation power for them, consisting of a particular mutation power action and a specific set of one or more effects. Does this sound familiar? Uh, when your character manifests the evolved mutation, consisting of the exact combination of action and effects previously chosen, reduce the difficulty of the check by one. This is a straight reskin of Signature Spell yep. uh, from uh, from Realms of Terranoth. And, uh, you know, we did mention it last episode, and I think, uh, you know, we, we talked about how we would do that. Well, this is how it's done. Yeah, and, you know, with, with, with Signature Spell, it represents, you know, listen, this is a spell, that, this is a particular recipe that you know like the back of your hand. Yeah. You have practiced it to the point that it's second nature, so guess what? You get to reduce the difficulty, but only for that exact recipe. How yes. do you represent that? In, and it's a great mechanic that we wanted to represent with mutations. How do you represent mm. that with post-apocalyptic mutations? You make it an evolved mutation, right? Yeah. You mm-hmm. do this. You, this you, you have evolved this particular mutation. You do it extremely well. Yeah. So, And this, this definitely falls into that first category, of, obviously, of, of talents. But our mm. next tier two falls into the second category where it's not directly related to casting or the, the, in our case, manifesting these powers. It's a Mm -hmm. static ability. And we call this one latent mutant (laughs) tier two. Again, uh, passive activation, Mm non-ranked select one mutation skill, aberrantics, metabolics, or psionics. That skill and discipline are now career skills for your character. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> you know this. This is a. This is this. This uh, is appropriate to account for characters that are basically becoming mutants later in life. Okay. Yeah. Um, or mm-hmm. having these powers manifest in some way to keep mm-hmm. it balanced. It, it only provides a career skill access to one power skill. And even if you compare this to similar talents that they have for magic, it only gives you access to one magic skill and mm-hmm. the default secondary skill for additional effects. In our case, discipline. It's also going to cost. 10 XP and a tier two talent to get this. I mean, and, and mm. for a comparison and a bit of a rescan, I mean, this is very similar in flavor to the, the bard uh, and runic lore talents from Realms of Tyranon. And, uh, you know, looking at it, it is possible that, uh, you know, if uh, depending on how we would do, if we were doing this as a complete setting, and it may be something that we discuss later on uh, in future episodes. But if you were designing your species or your uh, your archetypes for this particular setting, 
um, or even your careers, you may have, um, you know, only one of those skills that's attached to that particular, whether it be a career, whether it be a, a species. Um, and so this is giving you access to a second one, which may open some interesting uh, options for you uh, to be that little bit more versatile. Yep. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, but it's a great for this setting. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And I, I can sort of see it being used in other settings as well. Um, you know, and I know I keep going back to it, but, uh, you know, a superhero setting would be absolutely fantastic if you've sort of got a character who has, you know, like a, an Iron Man sort of person that has absolutely no, um, you know, mutant powers or, or any sort of thing like that. But then after exposure to the uh, the arc reactor that he has in his chest, suddenly he d- starts developing some sort of powers. Um, that's, that's also, a, that's a bit of a stretch. That's a bit of a stretch. Why don't you go for the easy one, man? You, you, have, you have an adventuring party of, of a brilliant scientist, his brilliant right. scientist's wife, his bodyguard test pilot, or his bodyguard buddy, and her brother, the test pilot. And they're a really cool right. adventuring party, and they're astronauts. And then <laughs> they get exposed to strange cosmic rays. <laughs> and they become Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman and the Human Torch and the Thing. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> look, you could also look at this from if you were porting Star Wars across. Yeah. You could almost say that this is for sensitivity as well. Um, if uh, if that's the direction you were going to go in and doing your skills that way, yeah, uh, that's that's another process as well. Yeah, I, interesting. Although I, I would I would do it but differently from Star Wars because oh, sure. I mean and, and that would come into the design the whole process that we've gone through. This only gives you access to one skill as career skills. Yeah, you're, true. If if you're getting into well, but then again, that actually might be totally worthwhile because if I was to create a career for a Jedi, they would probably mm. have access to any force related skills that we've developed. No, 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 I I take that back. Okay. All right, so our next one is Mutant Training. Uh, It's, uh, again, it's Tier 2. Its activation is active incidental. It's non-ranked. When your character manifests a mutation power, you may spend one story point to use this talent to add a single advantage equal to your character's ranks in discipline to the results. So this is, it's a reskin of Brilliant Casting Talent from the EPG uh, and really fits that sort of, uh, that theme of, of, the, of the powers and that, uh, you know, you've, you've managed to work out uh, the, the best course of, of, of using your own abilities to be able to power some of the effects that you've added. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, so you... And, and that's reflected again in discipline. So if you get that up mm. there and you've got three ranks in discipline, pop a story point, boom, three advantage to the results. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I love brilliant casting. It's a great talent. Mm. Very much so. Well, what's our last one, Chris? Our last one for tier two is Wasteland Mutant. Uh, <laughs> uh, again, tier two, uh, activation passive. This is a ranked talent. Your character gains a boost die per rank of this talent on any non-mutation skill check made to avoid or reduce the effects of radiation, contamination, toxic atmospheres, and similar post-apocalyptic environmental hazards per GM discretion. 
So this mm. is that this is that second category of talents, right? Again, you yep. have some mutation capability, but it's not manifested in powers. Now, it was very important when we we because I mean, now we created this talent. This is brand new out of whole cloth, you know, representing again those minor mutations that aren't so flashy, but they're just in this setting would be all too common mutations. Uh, you know that, that your wasteland mutants are going to have to have to deal with irradiated food and water, to deal with biological contaminations or just other random wasteland hazards that are going to be out there. And it's important to note that. We for balance, it was very clear the boost die is only gained on non-mutation skill checks made mm. to avoid or reduce the effects of these things. Because the survive power mm. is a skill check made to avoid or reduce the effects of some of these things. Okay. But that is obviously yep. a mutation skill check. Okay. So mm. this would come into play when you're making that survival check. This would come into yep. play when you're making that perception check or that resilience check, okay, mm. to to avoid those things. And it's just popping your boost dice. <laughs> per rank and it starts at tier two so it's not like it's a five xp you know to start it off with okay yeah it's reminiscent to me Huli, of the, the there was a series of tar- star wars talents of various stripes they were like here you get a boost die <laughs> you know each rank gives you a boost die to your vigilance you remember those each rank gives yep. you a boost yep. die to your perception right yeah so very similar in that regard yeah yeah and what's interesting is that and this is something which we don't see much but uh rank talents that are not just tier one, uh, which uh, was uh, you know something we felt that was uh, important to have in in this range of talents as well. So uh, very very cool. All right, so that's all of our tier ones and twos done. So let's move over to tier three. So the first one is healing factor improved. So if we remember back to the tier one, uh, which uh, for the healing factor, uh, which is when your character has four nights rest in addition to one wound healed, your character heals an additional two wounds for each rank in the talent. Okay, so for this one, uh, tier three activation is passive and it's non-ranked. So your character must have purchased at least one rank in the healing factor talent to benefit from this talent. And it says, when your character has a full night's rest, they may attempt a resilience check to recover from one critical injury. This check is performed using the same difficulty as the weekly check detailed on page 116 of the Genesis Core rules. It's a brand new talent, and it's designed to represent the passive mutant healing capability. And it's a nice addition to the original tier one talent. What are your thoughts on this one, Chris? Well, I think about the Flash once again, right? I mean, mm. full, a full night's rest, he's recovered all his runes, new ones, right? Well, every episode of the Flash, he stumbles and he breaks his arm, okay? Or, you know, <laughs> you oh, you shattered your patella or, you know, so or, he always suffers some horrible critical injury. And it's like, right. but you'll be fine in the morning, right? <laughs> yeah. That's because Barry, you know, has, you know, improved healing factor as the Flash. Yeah. So he's able to roll yep. that resilience check. You know, and those occasional episodes where he was like, you know, blind for like two days or wheelchair bound for like six or seven days. You know, it's like, well, dude, you, just, you, you quit, quit failing your resilience check, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. But, you know, I thought it was a nice bump up. You know, if healing factor lets you, you know, heal at, you know, essentially, you know, two, three, four, five, six times the normal rate. Mm-hmm. Heal, improved healing factor lets you heal critical injuries at, again, seven times the normal rate. Yep. Yeah. And our last tier three is Steady Mutant. Again, Tier 3, passive activation, non-ranked. Your character does not add setback dice to mutation skill checks 
for distraction or being encumbered. Mm. So we're getting a bit of our ahead of ourselves because we haven't <laughs> quite gotten to step six yet, <laughs> which, which, which details out you know our penalties for casting. But but this town is designed to play with that um, and is very much inspired by the battle casting talent from Realms of Tyranor. Yeah, very cool. All right, so that's all about tier threes done. So now we'll talk about tier four. And our first one is Evolved Mutation Improved. So it's a uh, tier four, as I said. Activation is passive uh, and it's non-ranked. Now your character must have purchased the Evolved Mutation Talent to benefit from this talent. And when your character manifests their Evolved Mutation, reduce the difficulty of the check by two instead of one. Now this is a straight reskin, uh, as we said before, of, uh, you know, the first one was Signature Spell. Well, this is a straight reskin of Improved Signature Spell, both of those from Realms of Terranoth. And we also spoke about those um, way back in, I think it was episode 11. Um, I'm not sure. Or maybe it was 10. I can't remember now. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so yeah, take a look at that. But uh, But yeah, just... Yeah, straight reskin, very, very simple to understand. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah. And our last talent, our very last, our 12th talent, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, tier four is called Fast Mutation. Mm. Mm, it's, again, tier four. Um, activation is active. It's a maneuver. Non-rank. Mm-hmm. Once per encounter, your character may spend a story point to perform a mutation power action as a maneuver. Mm-hmm. And this is a straight reskin of the Conduit talent from Realms of Tyranoth. Definitely a tier four. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, that's that 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 is what it is. And and those are our talents. Um, and Huli, how many of these were reskins compared to brand new? We had what two or three, I think, all new talents. Yep, and that's all that you really need. Again, there's nothing wrong with big borrowing and stealing. Um, the, the things that you do have to remember though, that if you are producing your own content for uploading onto the foundry, you have to be really, really careful as to what, um, you do, you know, big borrow or steal that, uh, you have to change the wording enough as we have in these talents <laughs> just to change it so that it's, uh, it's not a complete ripoff. You can't copy paste. No, you can't copy paste. If you need to just copy paste, you need to just reference it in a, in either a table as they do in Realms of Terranoth and Shadow of the Beanstalk, or you put it somewhere in the book that says that it uses this. The easiest way is a table to say these are the talents uh, and where they are and uh, what can be used. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to doing the full write-up of the talent, you have to make sure that it's not a copy-paste and you do change things. And that, that applies to everything, everything, including equipment and stuff like that as well. Now, so, yeah. fair, this is not going to be a huge problem with a reskin because if it's a reskin, no. you're never going to be able to get away with a copy and paste. You have yeah. different names for everything. You have different skills. Yep. You have different everything, okay? So it's for a reskin, it's typically not going to be a problem, but it's a very important point to note. Mm. And as you look at these 12 talents we've come up with, we did our very best to follow the three precepts we outlined for you guys. One, mm. beg, borrow, and steal. Two, kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. And three, <laughs> don't go crazy. Yeah. And believe me, it was hard not to go crazy. Gamers, we have the information <laughs> to do so. Um, but we decided to keep it to 12, and that's what it's going to be. But these yeah. talents are, of course, going to be fully detailed out uh, along with the rest of the complete post-apocalyptic mutation reskin. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. the resources section, um, once we finish this particular series. 
So anxious yeah. for you guys to all get that on the table. And um, just as a, a, a little bit of a snippet to uh, to get people to to go and take a look at that, we are going to include a tier five talent as well that um, you can check out, and you'll only be able to find it on that document as well. So yeah, <laughs> we don't want to give you too much. <laughs> all right, step six. Yep. Sounds good. So step six is to determine your penalties and your threats and despair results. Now that we've finished step five, which is detailing all your talents, we can really begin to finally put the gift wrapping on all of this reskin with two very important things that uh, must carry over from magic into your reskin. The reason is, is that they are critical, as we've discussed way back in episode eight, to the balance of magic and any corresponding reskin. So, Chris, let's start this process. <laughs> Determine your penalties. Um, <laughs> if you guys take a listen to episode eight, and I, I believe episode ten is actually where we really dug into the detail. Um, right. We 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 covered this for existing magic rules quite extensively. And for reference, go check out page two ten of the core rulebook. Uh, specifically, table uh, table three dot two dash three um, mm-hmm. penalties when casting spells. Guys, magic is supposed to be hard, <laughs> and and the difficulties that you've assigned your spells assume that everything is perfect. They assume that you have a free hand and an un- unencumbered body to make your arcane gestures, that you have a clear voice to speak the magic words, and that you've got the ability to concentrate easily. And none of that is often the case in an actual encounter. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a result, adding setback dice in, or, or in, in some cases upgrades in some circumstances is not only expected, it is essential. It is crucial to the balance of the magic system. And as such, you have to Say it with me again. You have to represent it in your reskin. Think about how your spells are manifested. What is needed to manifest them? Are words of power, mystical gestures, strong concentration. Okay? Hmm. Then think about what could hinder how those spells are manifested. Obviously, the lack of what is needed, as you just defined, you know, for example, mm-hmm. being gagged if you need to speak words, not having a free hand if you need mystical gestures, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, does the lack of concentration or being distracted or stressed matter? Hint, mm. hint, it <laughs> should. <laughs> um, all of this should inform just a few penalties when casting the quote unquote spells of your reskin, which Huli leads us to our take on it for mutation mm-hmm. powers. We have designed a little table here, which you'll be able to read in the uh, the document, uh, the, the supporting show notes. It's called Penalties When Manifesting Powers. Uh, we have listed a condition and a penalty. So what we'll go through each one and uh, discuss it if we need to. So the first one is the character requires a free hand or appendage to manifest the power easily such as firing beams of radiation from a hand, and it's restricted in some way uh, as per the GM's discretion. So if you don't have that, it's a single setback die. Yeah, and this is important because with mutation abilities, it's it's so radical. I don't know that I, I mean, maybe I would, but I don't know if I would enforce this for something like psionics, okay? I don't know if I need a free hand to do it, but maybe I do. If I get cinematic that, you know, the, 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 the psychic character stretching their hand out, you know, 
Jedi style to move something, that seems almost essential, right? right? Yeah, right. You know, they don't have to do it, so maybe they suffer a setback die when they don't have it. Um, But, you know, for something like survive, I would never really enforce this. I don't think you need a free appendage to use the survive power, okay? Mm. Or, or, you know, there's several I don't think you would need a free appendage for. Uh, You know, enhance, definitely not, okay? Mm. But things like uh, strike, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Telekinesis, maybe, okay? Mm. And it may not necessarily be a hand. It just could be a necessary appendage. It's going to depend on the power. And the point is, that's really per the GM's discretion. Mm. And, uh, you know, you can also, if you're, you know, reskinning the magic system for your setting, you really need to detail that in, I guess, the fluff side of things. Yeah. So, you know, you need to look at how these things manifest. And that can be in a short story form where you give an example of of somebody who's suddenly, you know, using their, their mind powers um, or they're using their, their mutations to, um, you know, create bolts of energy um, or, or any of those sorts of things. Give examples. Um, and uh, the best way to do that is sort of during your write-up of what, where the mutations came from, how they started, and that sort of thing. So really, really nut into that. And that will give you an idea as to where you would be applying these penalties and when you wouldn't. Yeah. If you, if you carry this over to, again, Huli superheroes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the lack of, a, of an appendage is never going to prevent Wolverine from using his healing factor. Okay. Right. No. Um, gagged and bound. Uh, but, you know, if we're going to continue with the same team of mutants, um, mm. if Scott Summers, Cyclops, is without his visor, Yep. I'm going to give him a setback die because to keep from killing everyone, he has to close <laughs> his eyes or put a hand over his face. Okay. Yep. And and we've mm-hmm. seen this in the comics and he has to like peek out and, and get a blast in, but he's having trouble, right? That's that, yeah. that's a perfect example of a setback die. Mm. I'd even go so far as an upgrade for that. <laughs> Especially. But but the, the point still applies, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, All right, so the next one is the character is heavily restrained or encumbered, so the pain and bodily exertion make it hard to focus, and that's going to be another setback die. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our third one is the character is in circumstances that interfere with their ability to concentrate, such as when suffering emotional turmoil or being buffeted by environmental effects. Uh, And the penalty for that is upgrade the difficulty once, or more at your GM's discretion. Now, one of the things that we start, if you look at the mutation powers, all of them start with discipline. It's only that we change that up a little bit when we introduce those talents. And, and that's that's the idea. One of the core concepts, when we go all the way back to step one, and we talked about mm. how the power source of mutation works, like passive abilities, that's the realms of talents. But when you're talking about powers, these are things that you have to think about. They're things you have to concentrate on. You have to will them into existence, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, consequently, if you have something that's going to futz with that, you're going to face an upgrade. Mm-hmm. So, Huli, what other conditions do we have in this long list? Well, that's pretty much it. <laughs> For mutations, you you really aren't going to have, you know, the required usage of magic words and motions like in magic. Um, and yes, for those following along, you'll notice that our mutation powers base difficulties, uh, you know, are overall a wee bit tougher than magic spells. Why? Because there are fewer penalties for manifesting mutant powers 
than for casting spells. So that's basically why. <laughs> and again, we're doing this in a sequential fashion because it's good radio. But we had yeah. an idea of what these penalties were going to be way back when we were designing the, the, our, our versions of the spells, the powers specifically. And the yeah. relatively few amount of penalties played into that strategy. And, and we kind of repeat it again. If you guys go listen to the last episode of Magic, you know, where we did, where we did um, Demystifying the Mystical uh, Part 4 um, mm. uh, back in Episode 14. We, we kind of talk about how the overall difficulty for most of these powers, a little tougher. It's a little tougher. Mm. All right. So our next sort of uh, ruling, I guess, is that we have to determine your threat and despair. Now, again, we spoke about this at length in Episode 8. So be sure to give that a re-listen. Uh, and also reference uh, table 32-4, uh, spending threat and despair on magic skill checks on page 211 of the core rulebook. Um, so that's specifically for magic. Obviously, use that as, um, you know, based on, on what we're talking about now. So in episode 10, we talked about how this is another critical balance point for the magic system. Threat and despair results will be much, much worse than they are for combat checks. So be sure to give that section of episode eight a re-listen before you do this for your reskin, because all of those are going to be the same principles that will need to apply doing it this way. Mm. So for a reskin, you should keep the penalty similar or in in the same degree of negative impact, but it's really important to also give some flavor to the reskinning to the effects if you're comparing them to the magic penalties for threats and despairs. Uh, So you really need to make the flavor and perhaps the effect itself reflective of the the power source for your reskin. So what's our take on uh, for mutation powers, Chris? Well, we've got our own little table here, which you guys will find in our document. Um, spending threat and despair on mutation power skill checks. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's go through these. We've got your single threat, your double threat, your triple threat, your despair, and your double despair. And mm. of course, all the, the threats can also be activated with a despair result, right? Right. So when you, and, and as we go through this, compare this to, to that table on page 211. See, see what we're talking about with changing the flavor, both textually, but also from in some cases from a mechanical standpoint. First up, we've got a single threat or, or of course, a despair. A couple options, a couple recommended options. Metabolic exertion exhausts or damages the character, and they suffer two strain or one wound, controlling player's choice. Another option, this character and all allied characters within engaged range add a setback die to any skill checks they make until the controlling player's next turn. Hmm. That is brutal. <laughs> now, now let, let's compare this, if we could, to the corresponding table uh, for a single threat or despair for magic. Obviously, for the first one, you know, suffering two strain or a wound, that's pretty much a straight rip and replace. But obviously, we changed the flavor text to be, you know, metabolic exertion, right? Yep. Now, the second one, however, we really did a brand new one for, yep. but, but, but similar, whereas the range was much higher and had to do with other spell casting characters for magic for mm-hmm. mutations. It really doesn't make sense. I mean, m- maybe you could say if I'm like a psionic character that I could disrupt the psionics of other psychic powers that other psionic characters are using, but yep. 
that would be very specific. And again, we got to keep it simple, stupid and keep it not complex. <laughs> so we really yep. want to go for that. And considering how weird mutation powers can be, it makes sense that if you screw up, you could really affect and thus give a setback die to anybody who's engaged with you, yeah. who, who's an ally on any check they do. Maybe they just got coated in viscous slime or experienced some psychic feedback or whatever. <laughs> but to, to really scale it down and make it a viable penalty for a single threat, hmm. we decided to make it engaged characters, really scaling down the range compared to what you see in the, in, in the magic uh, result for a single threat in despair. Yeah. So our next one is two threats or a despair. So we've got three choices here. The first one is the power doesn't take effect until the start of the next round or after a minute of narrative gameplay. So yes, yeah, so that's that's effectively a, a copy-paste. We're changing a few things to inject our setting, I guess, into, uh, into this effect. Yeah. The second one is the character manifesting the power experiences biochemical feedback and is immobilized until the end of their next turn. Now, the second option in the core rule states, if the character is using a magical item, it becomes damage one step. Now, since we don't really have magic items in this setting, we had to change it completely to give us a new, more thematic option. Uh, and this one uh, certainly does that to the point that I absolutely love biochemical feedback. Um, and, uh, you know, it makes it immobilized. And, you know, the immobilized condition is one of the nastiest conditions you can get because you're not running away from anything. <laughs> it's well, no, no, I wouldn't say it's that. the nastiest. I think staggered is probably the well, nastiest. Yeah, but, you can still run away with staggered. <laughs> that's very true. Um, I think for two threat, you know, immobilize is okay. You can't move from where you're at, but at least you can defend yourself. At least you can attack. At least you can use more mutation powers. Yeah. True. And our third one is uh, the there is a minor collateral damage depending on the power type. A nearby innocent NPC suffers two strain or one wound, or a nearby piece of important equipment is damaged by one step which kind of combines a couple of things in there from uh, the previous one. But, uh, yeah, it's that's cool. Uh, I like that, that, um, you know, you've, you're not just giving setback. You're actually causing some damage uh, to, uh, to people who, you know, you might be rescuing. And then suddenly you've got some sort of, you know, feedback loop or, or something like that if we're talking telekinesis. Uh, and then suddenly the ground starts shuddering and people are falling over and, uh, you know, breaking ankles and stuff like that. So, uh, so yeah, very, very cool. I like it. Mm -hmm. Now, our next is for three threat or, of course, a despair. A couple example options here. The power is stronger than expected. Um, one character of the GM's choice is also targeted or otherwise affected by it. This is pretty much straight out of the, uh, the, the, the magic uh, table, um, just yep. with its flavor text updated. And quite frankly, very worthwhile for three threat. Yeah. <laughs> then we get to the other option, which is the character enters a momentary state of metabolic rejection and is staggered <laughs> until, the, until the end of their next turn. So uh, yes. <laughs> no, act, no, no actions for you uh, until, until the end of your next turn, which is quite frankly pretty fitting for a three threat or a despair. 
Yeah, absolutely. But the end of the next turn, that's insane. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's it's three threat, and it, that, yeah. that's the whole point. These need to be tough. They need to they need to make people go pull. All right, and <laughs> that's that's so critical to the balance. Um, yep. you know, obviously, on the magic uh, table uh, for three threat, mm. the second option was that you know all other spellcrafters and like attuned magical creatures within a day's travel become aware of your character, right? <laughs> Which is really cool if you're talking about magic or like you know psionics exclusively or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, or if you talk about your Star Wars reskin, the Force, okay? Mm-hmm. But doesn't make a whole lot of sense for mutation powers. So we had to come up with something new, and this seemed to fit really well. Mm. So my favorite of all of the symbols, the despair. So <laughs> so we've got one despair, and then we've got two despairs. So uh, for the one despair, we have the character suffers metabolic shutdown and is unable to manifest mutant powers for the rest of of the encounter or scene. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> very, very cool. Then that's, that's pretty much straight out of the magic table as well. Exactly. Uh, and uh, the second one is the GM picks the target of the character's power. That can go pear-shaped <laughs> really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, is pretty much a straight uh, pull out of the, the magic table ones. Well, yeah. It's a great one. It's a great use for despair. I agree. The other thing to take into consideration is that, you know, when if you were playtesting this for us um, and you go through, the one thing that you have to remember is this is not a finite list. Uh, and I think that that's something which is really important for people who've never, ever played uh, this type of game before or they've never played Star Wars or Genesis, okay, is that this isn't an exhaustive list. However, it can be used if this is the first time you're doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, that uh, use this as sort of a basis of ideas, a jump-off point, as, as it were, that uh, you can use that just to, as you did when you first started playing Star Wars or first started playing Genesis. Use that for the first maybe session, maybe half session, and then uh, just go with the rule of cool. Just something to keep in mind there. But two despair. Chris, oh, talk to us about oh, that. The two despair. If you happen to roll two despair, heaven help you. <laughs> the two examples we have here, um, uh, the, the, the first one, um, and in a sense, the second one, the first one is pretty much straight out of the magic table. The second one yep. is, is a riff off of it and also similar kind of an upgrade to what we had for two threat. So the first is the character endures metabolic trauma, immediately suffering one critical injury. Ouch. Um, boom and ouch. The second uh, suggestion for two despairs there is, if you recall, for two threat, we had minor collateral damage. Mm-hmm. For two despairs, we have major collateral damage, again, mm-hmm. depending on the power type. A nearby piece of important equipment is completely destroyed, or an innocent NPC is physically or mentally damaged in a major way, such as being left comatose, catatonic, etc. Nasty. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> I'd love to see that happen at the table. Um, <laughs> I'm just some sort of a sadist. I don't know. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, are, are you seeing, like, as we go through this, and hopefully our listeners are as well, hmm. how these results are so devastating and how they, just like magic, still represent that enhanced penalty when you roll threat and despair compared to, say, combat checks? Absolutely. And and look, another thing that you can also consider as well, uh, and this is obviously what they've done 
when they've created uh, FFG. I'm talking about when they've created the uh, the magical uh, or sorry the magic threatened despair table, is that they've looked at what's in the combat table and then turn it up to eleven. Yeah, and that's if you sort of you don't think that something is really fitting to what you want. Uh, for your, um, you know, mutations or powers or whatever it is that you, you're going to be calling this reskin, you can always go back to that table, but then turn it up. Yeah. Look at it as a base and then go, what's worse than that? What's twice as bad? That's the barometer. Yeah. Look yeah. at the negative effects for threat and despair in the combat table. When you're coming up with the threat and despair table for your reskin, look at the combat table, make it twice as bad. That's, yep. that's the yep. barometer. And it could be, it could even be the same bad effect, but it could be accomplished twice as easily. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if it takes two threat to do it or two or three threat to do it for combat, you can do it for one threat with your mm. power or spell. Okay. Just twice as bad. And that includes things like knockdown, for example, yeah. not knockdown the ability, but forcing someone to fall prone. You know, the, uh, they've used their mental telepathy to, um, to do a big blast of something, and all of a sudden the blasters has caused this, you know, um, pushback um, because you know it, it's hit something harder than what it should, uh, and uh, suddenly you weren't ready for it, and you've been th- flown back, and you fall on your feet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and uh, you know, don't be dissing um, falling prone. If you've fallen prone in your turn, well, <laughs> you're prone until the start of your next one. And if you've acted first in the round, you're in for a world of hurt. And everybody's getting an extra boost die if they're over the top of you. Simple (laughs) as that. All right. So that's taken us all the way through that table. And, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, as I said, we'll we'll have that in in our document. So take a look at that and uh, let us know. And if there's anything extra that you think should be uh, added, let us know that as well. I'd love to see some more horrible, horrible things um, to do to uh, players and NPCs. That's taken us also through the end of step six. So at this point, mm. we've covered step five. We've detailed out our talents and we've gone through step six. We've detailed out our penalties for manifesting these powers or casting your spells in quotation marks. <laughs> and uh, and then the other part of step six, which is to detail out, you know, your threat and despair penalties. What yeah. is next, Huli? Next steps. Yeah, so at this point, um, you know, we've almost completed the the finish of our reskin of magic into our post-apocalyptic mutations. But we have step seven, which is define your implements and equipment. And this will bring us to our final episode in the magic series where we will dive deeply into the one aspect of the overall magic system that we've yet to cover at all. And that's implements and equipment. What we'll be doing is we'll be Uh, talking about what they are, what they do, and how to design them, Uh, and then how to reskin them from uh, for your own take on magic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm I'm very excited for that episode. I I fear it's (laughs) going to be another long one. Yeah, I love implements in the way that they've done them, but they can do so much more. <laughs> so uh, looking forward to really, really diving into that. So, uh, so yeah, but that that'll be in a few episodes' time. I'm I'm thinking with uh, some of the stuff that we've got, um, you know, coming up. But we'll talk about that later on. But uh, I know what we can talk about, though, Chris. What was that? We can talk about the wondrous people who are out there. One specific one, in fact as we'll be uh, talking 
to Mr. Seth Rattan. Ooh, I can't wait. I've been waiting for this discussion with Seth for uh, a while, ever since I first read uh, the Game Master's Eclectic Toolbox. So mm. by all means, let's get into Breaking the Mold. Breaking the Mold. The Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventure and campaign modules, and the much eclectic more. <laughs> but some creators go above and beyond subverting our expectations and breaking the mold with their work. Our Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now in the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure alloy from the slag and point you to the best content out there. Now, tonight's guest is the mind behind the StorySpanner.net, a community and fan blog all about Genesis, which focuses on useful content and advice for game masters and designers. Advice, game aids, ready-to-play modules, design patterns, and small module rule kits for both Genesis and Star Wars. But a while back, he released the Game Master's Eclectic Toolbox on the Foundry, which was a 29-page compilation of highly effective house rules, tricks and tips for Genesis to make your games even better than they already are. Things like uh, methods to quickly create adversaries, guidelines for awarding XP, how to use maps and miniatures in your games, adversary morale, random character creation, and so much more. It was a really impressive product. I, I love adversary morale. I know we're going to hopefully talk about that in more detail. Mm. But, you know, since this came out, we were really eager to get uh, Mr. Rattan on the forge to talk about it. And finally... Finally, we got our schedules to mesh up, and with that, we are proud to welcome for his first time on the Forge Podcast, Mr. Seth Rattan. Seth, welcome to the show, man. Great to be here. Absolutely glad to have you. Um, so, okay, like let's 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 start with a bit of introduction. Um, you know, for some of our listeners, they're probably hearing you, uh, you know, meeting you, you know, virtually, <laughs> auditorily, uh, for the very first time. So please tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and your gaming career. Well, I started gaming after college, which is a lot later than many, many people. Uh, that was around seven years ago. And I was playing at the time in a friend's Star Wars game using a homebrewed system. This was in the days when there were only D20 and uh, Saga Edition. And around about 2015, while I was working at a local game store, right before Force and Destiny released, I discovered Fantasy Flight's Star Wars RPG. And just fell in love with the dice, fell in love with what they do for gameplay, what they do for getting players to be more actively engaged rather than just being a stat block of death. <laughs> Since then, I've played and tried a lot of things, but I still mostly stick to Star Wars RPG and Genesis. And when I'm not doing that, I'll do some old school D&D or some of the also old school the West End Games D6 system. Mm. Two years ago... I started the Story Spanner blog because I had a bunch of stuff I wanted to share after Genesis released, and I need to update that blog more frequently than I do. And from there, uh, that's about where we are. And it's an absolutely amazing website, can I just say. So go and take a look at that, uh, listeners, if you haven't already. It's, uh, it's full of great ideas. Um, it's an amazing, amazing site, Seth. I've used it quite a number of times. So, uh, so yeah, well done there. So, you know, we ask all of our guests this question. So what sort of style of game or game setting or theme do you like to get on the table when you play? You know, what's what's your favorite thing to play in Genesis? Well, like so many listeners to the podcast, I came to Genesis from the Star Wars RPG. Mm -hmm. But I also, like I said, I started gaming late. And some of the first RPGs I played were on the computer. You know, Knights of the Old Republic, Morrowind. Uh, Mass Effect, that kind of thing. Mm. 
And in all of those games, they're all great games, but in all of those games, you will eventually run into these walls. And sometimes it's very elegant, like Morrowind, where there's just an ocean around everything, and that's the end of what's been prepared. Sometimes it's not so elegant. You know, in Knights of the Old Republic on Tatooine or in The Witcher 3, there will literally just be text that comes up on the screen and says, there's nothing more, turn back. (laughs) And uh, my first revelation, my first aha moment when I started playing RPGs wasn't really about the kind of genre or, or, or story. It was about setting and world. My aha moment was that moment when you realize, oh, there are no walls. Oh, I can, I can go anywhere because the person preparing the content is right in front of me. And if they're good at what they're doing, you can just keep running on the biggest left turn you want to. <laughs> so it's, I, I put all kinds of genres on the, t- on the table. But for me, role-playing games are really about trying to experience and explore a world through a character's eyes. Mm. Very well said. Lots of good things. Should, we should all get framed on our walls. You know, <laughs> yeah. ironically, there are no walls. Get that framed on your wall. <laughs> Say there are, there are no walls. That point is also ironic, um, but also very good advice. Very good advice. So, speaking of very good advice, Seth, let's talk about the Game Master's Eclectic Toolkit. Give us the pitch, man. Tell us about the supplement. How how would you describe it to someone who might be interested in purchasing it? So the Game Master's Eclectic Toolkit is a collection of house rules that I've used in the various RPG campaigns I've run over the years. It covers things like adversary creation, adversary morale, skill challenges in a fair amount of detail, awarding XP, designing new talents, and a lot more. Most of these rules are filling in little bits of wisdom that I found to be missing when I was running a Star Wars RPG, especially early on, uh, and especially where similar bits of wisdom that you might try to import from other systems like D&D don't really translate that well. Mm. So it's, it's trying to fill in that wisdom place. There's also a big focus on speed running the game and time management at the table. So how do you make things go fast so there's less dead time? I just feel like dead time at the table is as bad as dead air on a podcast and you don't get to edit it out at the table. <laughs> the book is also thoroughly digitally cross-linked and bookmarked. So it's designed for reference and it's designed for you to take the pieces that you want and leave the pieces that you don't. Because that's something that doesn't get done very often um, is that, that whole linking. You want it to be able to, to find things quickly. And that's, I mean, that's obviously what the, uh, the Eclectic Toolkit is all about. So you want to make it easier for uh, for the the GM who's running encounters and and just running the campaign generally to be able to find stuff in, in a in a flash. So uh, so yeah, that's great advice there. And it's not too difficult to do in InDesign. I haven't used that new program people have been talking about, whose name I can't even remember. But I know in InDesign, it's a very it it's it takes time, but it's not a challenging thing to add on. So it's. Mm. Surprising to me that so many professional companies don't do it with the PDFs they publish. Mm. So what was the, the impetus in the first place to, to make such a, a diverse supplement, you know, filled with so many, many different things? Um, you know, was it hard to narrow down what you wanted to put in? I mean, obviously, with someone with your experience uh, and, uh, you know, the knowledge base and wisdom, as Chris mentioned before, that you've you've got all of your effectively your brain filled with uh, the the stuff that game masters should be doing to make their games great so how did you go through the narrowing down process for that so the original impetus years and years before the foundry or 
even uh, Genesis, was to have all my house rules written down in one place where I could reference them, just in a Word document. Mm -hmm. After I started the blog, storyspanner.net, I looked at the document and started polishing it up to see if it was something I could put up there. Mm -hmm. But it really only kicked into high gear when the Genesis Foundry was announced, and I asked myself, hey, I wonder if I could sell this instead. I wonder if it's worth that much to people. Mm. <laughs> that, that, though, it turned out to be right. It was worth a lot, but it took a lot more polish than I'd expected to get <laughs> it to something that I was comfortable selling. Yeah. There's sort of also the opposite of an impetus, maybe, but there was a bit of an animus in creating it in that, and I'll read from the introduction here. A person who comes to our community excited about Genesis with a question about how to do something unusual and departs with the curt reply, just don't bother with that is a person we turned away needlessly. I'd rather tell that person, here's something that won't break the game, go knock yourself out. And that, you know, I see it on the forums and the subreddit, the Discord and your guys' forums and Facebook pages are better about it, but people will post an idea they have, and a lot of people will just say, yeah, don't do that. Don't mm. do that in this system. That doesn't mix well. And, you know, that, that answer, it doesn't do it for me. I think back in particular to the maps and minis rules. I remember someone had posted this 20 or 30 page document of rules for miniatures with Star Wars RPG. And I looked at the document and I thought, well, this is not how I would do it. And I looked at the replies and it was just people telling him, basically give up. And to me, that's the wrong answer. That really was the sort of impetus and animus for it. That's, I'm slow clapping over here. Uh, <laughs> that's, that, that's really wonderful. And I, I, I'm ashamed to say, more often than I would like, I'm often guilty of that same thing, um, and it, it it takes a lot of a lot of creativity and heart for us as designers and, and game masters to to come to that need with an open mind, but at the same time a level of system understanding and mechanical reality to make something balanced. You know, if somebody came to me with a twenty or thirty page document to use minis in the system, I'd be like, you you know, wow, I you know that's probably not how I would do it. You, I think you may have seriously overthought it. Um, there may be a much simpler way to do it. But the, but the last thing I would say is, you know, for example, because it, it, it's a great example. I, I remember which one you're talking about. The, the last thing to do is say, yeah, just don't use minis. I mean, if somebody comes to you with a, with a, with something they want to insert into the game, there's a an itch that they're wanting in their experience to be scratched. Mm. And honestly, the the you're you're right. The worst thing you can do is say, oh, it's not really an itch. Just ignore it. You know, instead, you know, the, the good GM or the good designer comes up with a way, to, okay, well, let's find a way to scratch that itch, but do it in a, in a very balanced way that really is representative of the rules and, and flows perfectly. And, and Seth, that's something I've seen with, I was, and I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll gush a bit. I was very impressed with this work. And yes, I, it was beautiful. It was well laid out. I love the linking, the cross-linking you had all over the place, but I'm sorry, you had some fantastic content in here, stuff that I was like, wow, that, that's that's, you know, that's elegantly done. That, that is in the spirit of the system. So it's clear to me, at least, that you took that to heart when you came up with this. It's great, man. It's great. Absolutely. And it's, you know, especially now with all the things that have been going on with Asthma Day, if we in the community tell someone, hey, don't bother with that, they're not going to keep trying to bother with that. They're going to go pick another system. And that's the last thing we want. Exactly. Absolutely. So, okay, in this supplement of 29 pages, you've, you've got, you know, a few dozen major areas of, of house rule suggestions, tips and tricks. How, what was the process like for compiling these all? Are they all things that you have personally used? I mean, ultimately, I guess my question is, I mean, for, for all this, what did the playtesting process look like as well? 
So this is an interesting question. I've used almost everything in the toolkit over the years, and it is sort of the stuff that has survived at my table, and that's the best test, I think, for any house rule, is are you willing to use it again, or do you need to change it? Um, <laughs> but there are a couple things I haven't, and there are a couple things where the playtesting looks a little different. So one or two things, like the detective career, I haven't put on the table yet, but I didn't feel too bad about that because it is mostly serving as an example of how you could design a career, rather than literally, this is ready to go right now. Hmm. Some other things, like uh, quick adversary initiative, this is an example of where playtesting doesn't have to involve other people if you can't find other people. For that, I literally just took my big binder of Star Wars and Genesis adversary cards and some old character sheets and rolled up about 30 different initiatives until the rules were producing something that worked. So don't feel like, listener, if you can't find people to play with right now, there's nothing you can play test about your work. I guarantee there is. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's one of the things that obviously when, when people aren't um, necessarily with groups and they are creative people, you know, for whether it be for work reasons, whether it be just geography, that uh, having uh, the means to play test uh, is, is a you know, can be a barrier for people to release product. And it may be absolutely amazing product uh, that if they're not um, doing their playtesting, they're going to feel, no, sorry, I, I just can't do that. Um, you know, there's always the internet, then you can throw ideas out there with people that you trust. But um, yeah, if at a pinch, definitely something like what you're talking about is, is absolutely perfect. Yep. Another, another important part of playtesting, I think, is feedback and i just mentioned that because there's a great example of it in here mm. under the random character section the two people i went to most often for feedback were my very good friends sam and shane who ran some of the first games i played in and when they both looked at the random characters page i was kind of wondering you know i have this table of dice rolls and i have this picture of dice rolls and which one is more clear mm. and shane came back to me and he said i didn't quite get it until i saw the picture below and then Sam piped up and kind of said, well, I thought the table was much more clear. And I immediately knew, okay, I've got to keep both of these things. And that's <laughs> the sort of thing you don't find out if you're not willing to show your work to other people. So that's just as important part of uh, playtesting and developing the work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, Seth, we've, we've talked a lot about the product, but can you give us a, a, perhaps a glimpse of something exciting or unique in the Game Master's Eclectic Toolbox? to you know to whet our ap appetite a little bit or or perhaps um you know share with us your favorite part of of the advice that you've given in the supplement well my favorite part or at least the part i use probably the most often is the idea of clout rating early on i started by creating adversaries um as if they were player characters and that's absolutely the wrong thing to do don't don't do that i know we just said you know don't tell people not to do something, but don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't, uh, do, don't do that, no. <laughs> but the second, the second stage I used was a little bit of a modification from the episode of a certain Order 66 podcast about creating <laughs> adversaries. And you can see that in the free sample. That's sort of my evolution of that system where I add in oh. little arrays for characteristics and skill ranks to make that go faster. But then I eventually one day just said, what if I just pick one number and see what happens? And it turns out that if you pick one number as the adversary's default characteristic rating, uh, that number is also going to be their most common dice pool size. It's also going to be the most common difficulty that other players make checks against against that adversary. Mm. And it's the number you'll refer to most often. So it let me kind of 
create adversaries on the fly and very naturally fill in details if those adversaries turned out to be more important. That's very cool. And uh, I'm glad I'm glad to hear you bring in Order 66. That was I know which episode you're talking about. That was a fun episode. And there's there's a lot we've all learned, I think, that's coming up into this. So, I mean, and you've got some amazing advice. I want to call a bit of an audible here. Can you talk to us a little bit about morale? Because mm. I'm sorry, like there's a lot of really useful stuff in here, Seth, and, and so many useful things for so many GMs. My possibly my favorite thing in here is morale. Yeah, but. That's that's Julie. I think you I think you might share the same opinion. Yep. <laughs> um, but I, I find it to be to be elegantly done and and a wonderful addition that really doesn't have a corollary in the game right now. Can you can you give us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain on morale and what it is for listeners? So morale is the idea of answering the question: When should an adversary retreat from a combat? Right. For player characters, the players are going to know when it's time for them to retreat. They're going to they're attached to their characters. They're going to be making that decision for themselves. But I as a game master and I think most game masters aren't particularly attached to most of the adversaries I might throw at the party. <laughs> um, and I think this this idea of morale is one I pulled from old school D&D, which I also play quite a bit of where um, monsters have rules for morale for when they retreat and there's an expectation also, just like in Genesis, I think, that sometimes the party will retreat. Hmm. And D&D, really, 3rd, 4th, 5th edition, kind of shifted to this world of, you know, the monster is an energizer bunny, and it's just going to keep bouncing into the party until either the party is dead or it is. And, and somehow we got to a place, especially with a lot of DMs coming in from 5th edition, where that's the default thinking. And without a framework for a different thinking, it's hard to move away from that. So that was sort of why I put it in there. And I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to make it work elegantly. And eventually the answer I came to is that the same factors for when you should make a morale check should also decide how hard it is. So there are only that many things to remember. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's very well done. I mean, for, for, for me, this, that, that one page is worth the price of admission alone mm -hmm. because, because this is something that, uh, because we GMs who have been role playing for a long time, those of us who like, who unlike you, it seems, uh, and, and this is probably to your, to your benefit, those of us who cut our teeth on D20 on third edition D and D primarily, you, you, you hit the nail on the head, you know, threats are energizer bunnies. Okay. When do they run away? When the story demands it. Um, but typically they don't, but it's, it's, you know, and the GM will typically just forget about, oh, he's dead. You know, but it seems like every bad guy just fights till they're dead. <laughs> and the core mechanics of this system, the underlying mechanical weave and balance don't necessarily assume that a bad guy is going to fight until he's done. Um, and so having this, you know, but, but then the question is, okay, when do they leave and making it dice rolls, making it a part of their own capabilities, um, and having appropriate difficulties based on what you've got in here, it adds a level of gravitas to that decision, but more importantly, the all too important element of chance, um, the same thing the PCs have to deal with when they face a fear check. Okay. Or when they make a combat check. Um, you know, th th things just could go their way or they could go horribly wrong. And the same can happen for threats. And sometimes, you know, my gosh, you, you know, you just roll poorly when it comes to something like morale and that guy's going to split. 
And and it, it's sort of, I, I don't know, like an under, in my opinion, at least, an underutilized and underexplored avenue of the PC and PC re, uh, relationship mm-hmm. um, without getting into game theory design <laughs> geek, too terribly. Much. Um, but just well, well done, man. Well done. Thank All you. And I'd just like to add to that as well. One of the, the examples that I use when, when I start talking morale is if you've got something like a just a grizzly bear, you know, even if it's a, a dire bear or whatever else that um, goes into, uh, you know, hunt for food and as a result it sees the, the party as food. And so it goes into attack. A lot of GMs and, and DMs alike, are uh, they let that creature just keep on attacking until it's dead. And then, you know, the, the PCs grab whatever treasure is left behind and, and move on. But if we're talking real life, a, a creature is only going to stick around for as long enough that they have the upper hand. So having a system in there, because, you know, it, it doesn't exist in Genesis. So I'd like to reiterate exactly what um, Chris said, that, that well done on, on this system, because it really focuses in on that whole, okay, so if there's, you know, the, the circumstances that are going to exist through dice rolling, that's what you're going to be using to go run the hell away. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that it's absolutely brilliant. So well done. Dude. Okay, Seth, last thing to talk about, and maybe the most important question for you tonight. What is next for you, thestoryspanner.net, and the Foundry? Well, like I said, I need to update the blog more often than I do. Um, (laughs) I have a lot of projects in various stages of the works, but for me, the next thing is uh, a product I'm calling City Pulse, a cyberpunk urban sandbox kit. It'll be Android compatible. It draws a lot of inspiration from the Galactic Campaign Guide of the D20 Star Wars role-playing game. It does a couple of cool things. It'll make use of the tenfold tables I have at the end of the toolbox for common city locations like bars, nightclubs, shops, corporate offices, back alleys. And it also evolves the idea of cloud rating into something I'm calling polymorphic adversaries. So by pairing a clout rating with a random table of descriptor tags, each stat block will be reusable again and again in different ways. It's pro- if I'm being conservative, it's at least two months away from being finished, however. Hmm. And in general, I feel more like a tinkerer than an author. So each product I publish on Foundry will probably be not centered around, but it'll be supported by at least one interesting mechanical idea I've been toying with for a while. Hmm. Ooh. God, caught me out that hook, man. That that sounds exciting. Two months can't come fast enough. <laughs> um, <clears throat> oh, it's fantastic. Well, I've set a deadline for myself publicly now. I don't know how I feel about that, but <laughs> we'll see how it goes. You set it now. You can't take it back. That's how it works. Oh, no. Right? What have I done? <laughs> you may not be aware of this. But what you say on this podcast is actually etched into stone tablets in my garage, and I take those to a secret underground layer where they are all stored. Um, no one ever sees them, of course, but they're there, so it is in stone. I'm just saying. Um, you know, we're going to hold you to that. <laughs> well, listen, Gamer Nation, as you're listening, if you have not had the chance to pick up the Game Master's Eclectic Toolkit, you really need to do so. Um, when this product first dropped on the Foundry and I and I read it, um, I, I was I was blown away. Um, I, I am, and, and Seth, I say this in all earnestness, I am proud of as a community member, 
to have this product on our foundry. Okay. And you should be proud of it as well. It is, it is well-written. It is well-designed and it has a wealth of knowledge. that I think any GM could benefit from. Mm. So if you guys are listening, you really need to check it out. Could not agree more. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. Thank you guys so much. Of course, man. Thank you for making it. Yes, Seth, on behalf of Chris and myself, and of course our listeners, thank you so much for coming on to the show tonight. Uh, we really do appreciate your time and uh, everything that you've uh, put together in the supplement and obviously uh, whatever else is coming in the pipeline. So thanks again. Thank you. Great to be on the show, and I hope eventually when City Pulse gets finished, we will be talking again. Look forward to it, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was very exciting. Ah, oh, so great, man. I, I love that supplement. It was so great to finally be able to get Seth uh, on yeah. the show and get our schedules to mesh up. So he did, he's, done, he's done good work. Seriously, guys, you got to go yeah, check that out. He's got some serious GMing creds behind him just very quietly. And, uh, yeah, a bit, of a bit of a man crush maybe from my end. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong indeed, with that. Indeed, indeed. In- there may be even something a little right with it, Hooli. Um <laughs> But uh, uh, speaking of something right with yep. it. Um, <laughs> That's a terrible uh, segue, let, Chris. Let's, <laughs> I'm the master of terrible segues. Let's see if we can do right uh, by some of our listeners with a couple of interesting listener questions, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. That sounds good. And we'll be talking about those under the hammer. Under the hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis role-playing game as, as it impacts both rules, content creation, and play again we've got some great questions this week um so chris would you like to start us off absolutely this actually comes in via reddit holla from uh, cody saboa <laughs> who asks the following i'm pretty new to tabletop role playing but my kids want to play god love you cody mm. i've started on the star wars role playing game but i'm considering genesis as well I'm learning how to GM, and I'm unsure what's the best way to weave the character's personal stories into the adventure I have planned. Good question. A little bit open-ended, but (laughs) it's almost an episode within itself when talking about uh, that sort of um, character, you know, integration into a story. Um, I had an answer for him. Um, Specifically when talking about Star Wars, you've got some great tools, and I'll talk about Shadow of the Beanstalk in a moment. Uh, but uh, with Star Wars specifically, um, more particularly with Edge of the Empire, uh, with its obligation, it is a great way to link in players into the immediate story. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, you have an obligation score, uh, which can go up and down during the, uh, during the length of the campaign. Uh, and normally you start with one, maybe two obligations. Um, and uh, if you take an obligation, you get so many extra points to spend on your a character uh, in the form of XP. So what happens is that, uh, and uh, Chris, you've done an entire episode on obligation and uh, morality and duty. But uh, with, uh, with obligation, you obviously set everybody's uh, table up uh, and then you work out the percentages and then you roll that on a table at the, they suggest, at the start of a session, I like what uh, GM Phil suggested, which would you do it at the end of the last session. So, um, you know, you don't do one for the first session. For the second one, you roll that 
at the end of the first session so that you've got some planning time to do. And then also the players have got, what does that mean? How come the bounty hunter's been rolled? We're not in that sort of scenario. What's that going to do? And it creates that uh, fantastic sort of element, which is outside of game time where you've got players talking about the campaign. And so they've, uh, you're really creating more of an investment to the overall campaign as well. So that's one way of doing it. Uh, for Age of Rebellion, there is the duty mechanic, which is a, a same sort of process, but a different way of doing it that focuses on what the speciality or what the motivation is for the character to be involved in the rebellion in the first place. Uh, and then you have morality, which I don't necessarily do it the same way that uh, that obligation is done, uh, but it can work in a similar sort of way. Uh, where each of the characters have a morality score that goes up and down depending on what sort of actions that they're taking during the campaign because that's just how the force works. Um, the As I said, uh, I'll talk briefly about Shadow of the Beanstalk. Shadow of the Beanstalk does have the system which is about favours. Uh, and that works very similar, um, but in my opinion better than the way that uh, it works with Obligation. Uh, and these are things that the players have a little bit more control over, uh, that um, uh, they decide to have align themselves with a certain faction to do something for that faction, whether it be that, um, you know, they've done a small favor, a medium favor or a large favor. And that can come back to plague the, the characters quite often during the campaign. Um, and uh, they can actually be bought off. Um, over time, uh, and then they can also gain new uh, favours as well. Um, and if they're desperate, they may decide that they want to try to get a large favour off someone. And it just builds in, and it, there's no dice rolling and whatever else you use. You've just got that listed of what they're doing. Um, so, and what organisations they have debts to. And, of course, as um, GM Huzz did to us, we had conflicting uh conflicting favors all over the place um including in some like one character had two conflicting things on the same favor tree but anyway that was <laughs> that was a nightmare to say the least uh but uh, that's a really good way that you can bring in uh the backstories of how they got those talents or how they got those uh those favors in the first place to bring into the story that you can introduce into the ongoing campaign Chris, I'm sure you've got some thoughts on this. Um, yeah, let's keep, you know, he asked about Genesis. Mm. Let's talk about desire, fear, strength, and flaw. It is, sadly, <clears throat> because, because I think when you compare to Star Wars, where with, especially with, um, with obligation and duty and, and to a degree motivate, uh, uh, morality, you have a mechanical consequence. Yep. usually positive or sometimes negative um, that comes with these characters really enjoy them and players enjoy spending a lot of time on them. Yep. I'm sad to see that character motivation, um, the, the sixth step of character creation in Genesis, which doesn't share the same mechanical benefit um, is, is often glossed over, unfortunately mm. uh, by, by a lot of players. And that's really unfortunate. I would encourage you with Genesis to really start there Especially if you're teaching your son uh, or your daughter 
um, you say kids. I don't know how many children you have. When you go through character creation and you have that session zero, really as a GM and a teacher, walk through the motivations. Make them spend serious time on it. Hmm. Really defining what their character's desires are, what their strengths are, and their fear and their flaw. And compared to Star Wars, where to some degree, uh, morality was a bit generic, but to some degree, you had very specific things that you owed or needed to accomplish. Hmm. Motivation in Genesis is upscaled a bit, kind of like the rest of the system. It's much more simpler. And I find that that tends to make things a little easier to actually weave into the story. Mm-hmm. If I have an obligation that I owe a local lord some money and therefore I've got to do what he tells me to do, um, that stinks and I'll have to deal with it. Um, but I can buy that off or I can get past it or I reach a point where I don't care. Mm. When you really dive into, okay, what your character, you know, your character's afraid of being wrong, okay? Mm-hmm. You can weave that into a story every session if you need to. It gives you the license to enact those various character motivation aspects simply with the way that you play NPCs mm-hmm. and how they react. And as a GM, especially with kids, take that moment when you're doing it. It's like, you know, if they say, well, I laugh at him, you know, oh, okay, would your character do that? Because this guy just told you you were wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. You, you make that, that subtle nudge and it reminds the player, especially younger player, oh, wait. I have this, I have this, this, you know, flaw for my character. Mm. Yeah, I have, or I have this fear and, and it can really prompt an exciting role-playing decision that at least in my experience gets the players to a much deeper level of engagement when it comes to their back. It's, it's not so much weaving their personal, their backstory. It's weaving their personal story and personality into the adventure mm. and into the game. And those are the moments that they're really going to remember. Yep. Because they start thinking about things as their character would. And that means that, you know, some of the decisions that they make, they may sort of stumble as a normal person would with any sort of major life decision. You know, that uh, that is certainly, as you say, Chris, it's going to give that real immersive quality to uh, to your game. So, yeah, very good point. Very, very good point. Excellent. All right. So hopefully that answers your question, Cody. Um, and uh, thanks for listening. And um, hopefully we'll we'll hear from you soon. Our next question is from Dylan Sargent, uh, who uh, asks on the FFG forums. He says, one of my players recently wanted to pour a pool of gas on the ground and wait with his Zippo at the ready. He said that uh, if the monster got close, he wanted to drop the Zippo and run before he it uh, had a chance to attack. Other systems that I'm familiar with give players a chance to prep an action and then interrupt in an enemy's turn. How could Genesis handle the same thing? Chris. <clears throat> Man. So to continue the wisdom of Seth that was just dropped on us, <laughs> the easy answer here would be to say, yeah, Genesis doesn't do that. There are no ready actions in the system. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's a really crappy answer, isn't it? <laughs> so allow me, to sh- allow me to share with you, Dylan, what I did in a similar situation for a player, and the party really enjoyed it. It wasn't Zippo and gasoline, um, but it was a ready to action that had to do with a grenade. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
Right. And I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave it at that. And the player kind of said the exact same thing. He says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm brandishing this grenade and I want to ready an action to just throw it at the ground if he comes close enough to me and, and then get away. And if you look at a system like Dungeons and Dragons, it becomes this mechanical chess game. Well, okay, I've readied the action. Oh, he triggered my readied action. Now what I do happen happens. And oh, I did it. And yeah, I run away. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you can do that in D and D and I'm sorry, that's just not very dynamic. There's not a whole lot of risk involved with that, is there, Huli? No, there isn't. Do you know how risk is represented in this system? Skill checks. <laughs> right. So, in this scenario, I would do what I had my player did. I said, oh man, that sounds like an awesome idea. I really like it. I would like you to please make a vigilance check opposed by this character's vigilance. <laughs> we're going to see... We're going to see if your readied action pulls off. Right. Are you faster than him? Or is he faster than you? Mm. All right. And dude, we did that at the table. And the whole table was like, like everyone just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it was instant engagement at the table. All right. Right. Um, and, and basically, that was his action to do that. And what it meant was if he pulled it off, I basically gave him a free maneuver out of turn. That's really what it came down to. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. So he could, he had the chance to run away if he was successful. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't even have him make the check until the guy got close on his turn. Right. Right. Um, another way to do it is to have a player set up and spend an action to set this scenario, a uh, similar scenario up. And you can, although I, I will typically advocate that you always have the PCs roll whenever possible, you can reverse it as well. Okay. Um, where the, the NPC as they're coming up on their turn are forced to reactively as an incidental make that opposed check against you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in whatever versus skills matter, you know, in this scenario, vigilance versus vigilance made a whole lot of sense. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but yeah, you can use that same methodology in all kinds of things. Mm. Um, just what, what, what do the dice tell you? And it, it was great. And in his, in his role, he actually succeeded, but he ended up with like, I think it was like three threat. Mm -hmm. um, and so he, and so he managed to run, he managed to drop the grenade, but he couldn't get away in time. Um, <laughs> and so the grenade blast went off and actually knocked him prone. Um, and it was really cool narrative. And it adds so much more than the simple chess game of readied actions. That's Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. True. I don't know. That's, my suggestion, that's how I've handled similar things and what I would suggest in this case. Mm. One of the things that I'd like to suggest as well, um, it's a little bit sort of, I've never actually tried it, but when I uh, received this question, um, I really sort of started to, to think about this. But one thing that you could do is you can say, okay, um, with, the, uh, with the rules as they are, if you roll to advantage, you can gain a manoeuvre. Okay, for for free. Basically, it doesn't cost you that extra two strain if you've rolled with your action to get that second uh, second uh, maneuver. So, if you have a scenario with this and you've got a player that um, says that they want to do this, obviously, you know the when it comes to any sort of combat, it's it's not really a hundred percent simulationist anyway because everything happens all at once. So if you've got a scenario where you've got a big brown bear, I'll go back to my brown bear theory. If you go back to uh, 
the brown bear and it's racing towards you and you've you've got this whole scenario where you've got the the zippo ready to go i would perhaps to make things really simple without adding an additional check is to say right well it would normally cost two advantage to do an additional maneuver if you roll three advantage for this check you can basically do exactly what it is that you want to do to move away before um, that happens. So that they're using that action to sort of prep, which is what D&D does anyway. Um, and uh, if those sort of circumstances don't pan out anyway because the monster is smart enough and stops, and so consequently that um, prep action doesn't happen. So we've already got advantage in our system that we can utilise. Use it for something if, uh, to allow players to to do what they want to do. Um, you know, that's uh, that's just my suggestion. You might want to make it two and might, might want to make it three. It depends on uh, the scenario, I guess. But um, that would be the – I think yours has obviously a lot more, got a lot more, uh, you know, player involvement with it, certainly, um, and it makes it more exciting at the table when you're making those sorts of checks. But uh, ready actions always bug the heck out of me because they're boring. I agree. I agree. But they're also fraught with danger, too. Well, they are, but I mean, it, it comes down to to the, the player feels a sense of of I mean, it's 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 like it's like <laughs> oh, I've I've made a good chess move is really what it comes down to. Sure, and I'm yep. sorry, that's boring. Hmm. It's not cinematic. Yep. In, inject some cinema to it, and both our suggestions hmm. all rely on one thing, and that is the beautiful mechanic of the narrative dice. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, just some suggestions for you there, Dylan. Um, uh, yeah, take on board uh, what we've said and, um, you know, let us know how you handle things uh, once you've got past this scenario. So, Chris, what's our last question? Uh, it comes in via Facebook from Alex Pepper, who mm. says the following. When designing an archetype slash species, how many pros versus cons should be considered? I.e., if an archetype race is given two starting talents what negatives should be applied to balance? Hmm. <laughs> I have an easy answer. <laughs> Go. <laughs> um, there is no answer to that question. You can apply no negatives. That's the thing. It just means that they have a staller, smaller starting XP pool. Right. right. There, is no, there is no balance. You don't even need negatives. Hmm. You don't even need positives. You can take a look at the EPG. Uh, for uh, I think it's the survivalist, I think, or yep. I forget what it's called. Um, it's one of the new archetypes that basically it's got more negatives than it does positives, but it has boss starting XP. Okay, <laughs> it, yeah. it's the, the the sum game is not positives versus negatives. It's that positives detract from your starting XP and that negatives add to your starting XP. Yep. That's the sum game. Yeah. So there is no you 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 can give a starting race two talents with no negatives. It just means that their starting XP is going to be low. Hmm. And when we say talents, we obviously mean special abilities. <laughs> yes. But, so, yeah, um, that's, that's something to, to point out, Alex. Yeah. To, yes, but to, to use the, the, the terminology of his question, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's the simple answer. I mean, you can go tit for tat, but, it, but, but as, as the EPG shows us, you don't have to – like. and, and I'll, be, I'll be blunt – I made, I think, the mistake of trying to to develop that balance early on myself, mm. because when we were homebrewing Star Wars species, that's also what we tried to do. Yeah, um, where where it's like, oh well, no, you need the negative to balance the positive. But as the the EPG kind of opened my eyes, where it's like, wait, I don't need that at all. 
the, the this dude has a bunch of cons, a bunch of negatives. His positive is the fact that he's got 120 starting XP. Okay, right. That's mm-hmm. that's the positive. Or this dude has a whole bunch of pros. He's got three special abilities and like no negatives, <laughs> but he's only got 65 starting XP. <laughs> that's the con. Okay. Yeah. Is that? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you look at the um, the science fiction setting, which um, or space opera setting, I think it is in in the core rules, uh, where it talks about the psionic, you know, it has only a starting XP of seventy, but the powers that it has, <laughs> it's nuts. Um, so it goes down to whatever theme that you're looking for. Now, obviously, a psionic in this sort of circumstance in the um, uh, in the, the core rules, they're obviously very, very focused at what they do. Hence the reason they don't tend to deviate outside of, of uh, using their, uh, their mental abilities. Um, and, uh, and that shows because they don't have time for, other one, for anything else. Um, hence the reason why they have 70 XP. But uh, as you say, Chris, you, you've got um, some of the other ones that have got like 120, 110, but their abilities aren't all that fantastic. And that can represent a number of things. That can uh, represent that the species is pretty much a jack of all trades um, if you're doing sort of like a sci-fi sort of setting where they don't have one particular specialization. Sure, they might be great pilots and they're they're renowned throughout the galaxy, but... For the most part, they move through all um, ways of life. So, you know, there's, I, and I agree with you, I don't think that there's an exact sort of formula. Um, and I think maybe that uh, Alex is looking for like a rule of thumb of uh, how many special abilities and, and negative special abilities uh, should be uh, to added to, uh, to a species when you're designing it. Um, and uh, it, it goes down to feel. Honestly, um, you know, you look at some of the stuff that we've done in uh, uh, when we've been looking at uh, archetypes, uh, which concentrate on on certain stats. For example, you know, we've uh, we've gone as far as the the Minotaur that that I did, and there was a lot of special abilities, but the uh, the XP that I got at the end was was quite low. Um, and that's where you start going, okay, do I need to have this? Do I need to have that? And during that sort of formulation process of, of designing it, you need to start looking at, is somebody going to want to play this character? And this is the other downside. If you've got someone like the Psionic who has that 70 XP but has all these special abilities, there's only a certain type of player with a certain type of taste that is probably going to play that type of character. Where if you've got yep. someone who has 110 to 100 XP, they're more likely to go, right, well, I have a little bit more freedom in what I want to do. Because players want that freedom to be able to create the sort of things that is in their mind the perfect character. But it may not necessarily be what's in your mind. So, uh, yeah, you've just got to play that balance game. Yeah. And if you are looking for a rule of thumb, Alex, Start with XP. Yes. Get 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 your get in your head. Okay, I want this species, this archetype, to have ninety XP. I want them to have hundred XP. Then add your positives that you want them to have. Your pros. 
then you just, just do the math and you'll determine how many cons you need to add. Yeah. And it's not necessarily one or two. It could or three. It could be three tiny ones. It could be one huge one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you know, again, uh, a, a rule of thumb is is uh, if you're if you're looking for a, a better way to balance it out, um, start with the XP as the goal. Mm-hmm. That's another 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 tactic I've often used when creating archetypes right here on this show, as Willie said. Yeah. Well, hopefully, Alex, that answers your question. And I have to point out a, uh, a big shout out to Alex as he is, well, firstly, he's one of my fellow Australians. And uh, secondly, uh, is a person responsible for doing the maps in the two or well, ones out and ones forthcoming of the Terranoth Adventures by Darren West. Uh, Alex does some amazing work, and if you're interested in getting Alex to do some work for you for a product for the Foundry, uh, just please drop me a line, and I can put you in touch with him. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so yay Australians! And you <laughs> <coughs> <Ew>, Aussies, <laughs> maps in your barbies. Uh, dear, I love it when you try it. Uh- <laughs> I can keep going. And speaking of Uli, it's sad, so sad, but we are now at the end of yet another show. You know that I can't uh, listen to that without laughing my head off. Anyway, uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, uh, it is the end of the show, but we will be back in, in either just a couple of weeks or a month. We're not quite sure yet, uh, but when we do come back, uh, you, you will be amazed and excited as we have a very, very special show planned where we'll be welcoming back to the show Sam Gregor-Stewart, uh, to talk about specialization trees. I cannot wait for that. Mm, it's going to be epic. Um, so much to look forward to with that. Uh, and I've already got my ideas going. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk more about that uh, online. And, um, yeah, we'll go from there. But, um, yeah, can while you wait for the release of that episode, please continue to send us any other questions that you might have about Genesis, about being a GM or a player, or just any gaming-related questions you like. Um, and how can they do that, Chris? Well, they can email us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com or post it up via one of our many social media platforms, including Facebook, the Twitter, YouTube, and Reddit, um, by searching at Forge Genesis. We've also been having some really good conversations on the D20 Radio Discord channel and, of course, truly dedicated conversations with our patrons on our very own Patreon podcast Discord server. And we would love to hear from you all. So don't forget that uh, you can also join the even larger discussion in the D20 Radio Facebook group where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And don't forget to give us a like or a follow uh, on any of our social media sites. You can also drop us a review on those sites or your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes and Spotify. Um, you can also, of course, visit our website at forgegenesis.com. Yes, those uh, reviews, we would love to see more of them. It does help us uh, bump up the queue uh, on uh, on iTunes. Uh, and it also lets us know how we're doing. Uh, we like to hear that as well. Um, and if you've got some ideas, a new segment for the show or something, anything, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Well, Chris, that's a wrap for us. Um, thank you to all of our listeners for listening. And uh, we hope you will join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game. I'm GM Hurley. May your tribes be many and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. 
Thanks again for joining us, listeners. And remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the D20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains a property of The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about the Forge Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com.